Everyone still looks uncomfortable. Perhaps they all remembered that old saying, power corrupts. Welcome to Second Officer Slog. I'm your host, and with me is regular host Jackson. Say hello, Jackson. Hello, Jackson. I think you've already done that joke on this podcast before, and we're in episode no. six. It's episode six, everybody. No, you can't. Keep, you could give me a different throw, or is is this like a? I'm just trying to actually stone. just like introduce the podcast, not do a uh-huh. bit. Not, oh no. Okay. Well, as, as a I've... member of the Federation, I don't do bits. <laughs> no. That wouldn't. That's beneath you. Yeah. Uh, our civilization has evolved to a point where we don't do bits anymore. <laughs> no, we have to go to the holodeck and be taught how bits worked in the early twenty first century. <laughs> We've never heard of these bits, right? Hello, hi, hi. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Star Trek. Star Trek. Yes, we're here to talk about it. Yeah, no. Uh, what have you been doing Star Trek wise these days? You're watching Enterprise still. I'm watching Enterprise again. Between the last recording and this one, I've started watching a bunch of Enterprise. I watched about, I guess, ten episodes. Taken another break as I get some work done because otherwise I would just watch the whole show in a week and not get any work done and fail uni. Who is your bad. favorite character in Enterprise? Oh, mm, to Paul. Okay. <laughs> I assumed you were going to say like Porthos sec- actually. So. No, like. Yes, Porthos is the best character in Enterprise, but that's not the, that's that's skipping the question. Okay, that's fair. I guess that's fair. Uh, both Archer and Topol are great. I'm pro. This is a pro Enterprise cast. Yeah, no, we are. Cast. I'm very excited for you to finish so we can read those Enterprise books. Yep, it's not going to take that long. It'll hopefully be some point next month. Yeah. Well, we won't read those books next month. We're busy for the rest of the year, but no. But you can yell at me about Enterprise. I get to watch the final episode of Enterprise and have a fucking excellent time uh, with all that nonsense. Yep, uh, recognizing that it sucks, but also glad that you were going to be able to read books that fucking undo all of the damage it did. <laughs> yeah, but I also get to see two thousand and six. Uh, is that no two thousand and five era? freaks in the tng costume oh it's so it's it's embarrassing i am ready i have never been more ready well unless i watch the episodes before it then i'll be more ready but yeah i wait it yeah, no i bet you're watching. i bet you are more ready now than you will be having watched season four of enterprise <laughs> well that's the worst part is that so one of the episodes we just watched of enterprise or we i, I just watched uh was the minefield which if you know what that episode is it is the episode that introduces the romulans to enterprise and i'm like man sure would be cool if they got it got to a point in the show later on where they could address this stuff because i know that would have been one of the later seasons uh so well, i'm earth I'm romulan war ex- yeah, I'm getting to experience all the disappointment of the Enterprise fans, all seven of them, uh, for the first time in 2017. It's going to be fun. You know what? Uh, I was just going to talk about how excited I am for Discovery, but you brought up the Earth Robin War, so let's just actually get into our episodes after this musical break. Nope. Let's tell everyone what the episodes are and what next month is, so people okay. can know whether to skip or not. Fine, fine, fine. I mean, we can just transition. For, we'll cut that bit out, but yes. I like the, I like the, here's what is talking about and what we are talking about. I like that segment. Okay. Well, then what are we talking about? Oh, that's fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) 
Fine, fine, whatever. This month, we are talking about two TOS episodes. We we're talking about Balance of Terror, uh, ep- Season 1, Episode 8. This air, We'll get into air dates uh, and when we get into the episodes themselves, actually. Just to save some time in this intro. Um, we are also covering Mirror Mirror, which is Season 2, Episode 10. Next month, if you'd like to join us for more TOS adventures, we are watching The Conscience of the King, which is Season 1, Episode 12, and Friday's Child, which is Season 2, Episode 3. Why Friday's Child, you ask? Nobody n- mentions that as an important enterprise or original series episode. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. It's because of the we'll books we're reading. That. Yep. <laughs> uh, and for the book this month, we are reading Mission Gamma Twilight, which is book one of four. It is a Deep Space Nine relaunch book. So if you haven't uh, list- watched DS9, then please do not listen to that segment. But it's going to be a good fun time. Yep. And uh, next month, we will be covering... Uh, this gray spirit by uh, Heather Jarman. Um, that's gonna be another one of these Mission Gamma books. Again, can't even talk about what they're about if you haven't watched DS Nine. They're full of spoilers. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, literally, like every single plot point is a massive DS. A lot happens on DS Nine. Yep, <laughs> you should watch that show, please. Yeah, yeah please. no, watch DS Nine. Uh, I say this because my partner would love to listen to my podcast, but uh, we are currently like early season two of DS9. She's never seen it, and she is unspoiled on most of the things. And I'm so excited for her to undergo this adventure of fucking tragic bullshit. <laughs> it's going to be a good time. You still haven't watched First Contact together. I know. She doesn't know how bad Star Trek can be. <laughs> we haven't watched We haven't watched uh, Final Frontier. She doesn't know how bad Star Trek can be. Oh, those are two different kinds of bad. But they're both bad. <laughs> okay. Wow. Right, since you stepped on my seg, let's just cut to the next segment. For our first episode this week, we are going to be looking at Balance of Terror, which is an original series episode, uh, season one, episode eight, first aired on 15th of December, 1966. It was written by Paul Schneider and directed by uh, Vincent McEvity, McEvity, fuck, I don't know, we'll go with it, whatever, they're probably dead. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. Oh no, a, he is still alive. He is eighty-seven. Uh, he's he's gonna come for you. <laughs> <laughs> I can take an eighty-seven-year-old. I think uh, that's true. Probably. I don't know what Vincent McCavity has seen, but uh, Palace of Terror is the original series episode which introduces the Romulans. Uh, oh, and we thought I we just should... I just wanted to throw this out because I said I was gonna keep doing this. This episode takes place in twenty-two sixty-six. Oh right, you right. You want us yep. to? No, no. This is my that. thing. I yes. want to. I want to start re- remembering what year things happen in. Uh, yeah, that because that is like the way that Star Trek fans refer to when things happen. But my brain goes, Whoa. yeah, because I, I grew up on the shows is, and they never yeah. refer to that stuff, so it never stuck in my head. And I would like to build that timeline. Yeah. Okay, that works out. Yeah. So this is Sen twenty two sixty six, and it is the introduction of the Romulans. The a quick summary before we go into our discussion, in case you've not seen the episode. Uh, the episode begins with Kirk like officiating a marriage uh, as the captain of the ship between um, 
uh, I can't remember her name, but the Angela the... Martin and Robert oh, it's right Tomlinson. here on the screen. Yep. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'll just use this memory alpha page to fill me in. Yes. Yeah. Between a- Angela Martin and Robert Tomlinson, um, and then suddenly there's a red alert, uh, and he has to come to the bridge, and the ceremony is interrupted, and uh, they have run into trouble in the neutral zone. There are, uh, which this is the time they explain what the neutral zone is. Yeah. Uh, do you want to explain the neutral zone intricacies? Okay, so a long, long time ago before the Federation, the Earth and a planet called Romulus, which was the heart of the Romulan Empire, had this war that happened. And they lobbed atomic weapons at each other, and they never communicated because they only used radio transmissions, because this is before view screens. And there was this huge, horrible war. And when they signed like a ceasefire, they established a neutral zone, which is a space between uh, Earth and areas and Romulan areas where neither country, I was going to say, where neither like civilization could go into without violating the treaty and starting the war again. And because it's that, there's a bunch of outposts right on the edge of the neutral zone. Yes, there's a bunch of outposts right on the edge of the neutral zone, and uh, those outposts have been attacked, and the Enterprise is approaching them, it approaches the first one, and it's just become rock, it's like there's nothing left, and then they approach another one, and they talk to this guy, who's like, oh shit, we've been attacked by this huge weapon, it appeared out of nowhere, and then attacked us, uh, and then they die, and you, you, yeah. And the Enterprise runs into a cloaked Romulan bird of prey, which has to uncloak to fire its massive weapon. Uh, and the ba- bulk of the episode is the uh, Enterprise having to deal with this Romulan ship. And it is about the two and fourth between Kirk and the Romulan commander. He never gets a name. Yep. Uh, and you all forgot to mention the fact that they get the, like backtrace the Romulan communication signal and see inside the Romulan ship, which means... Yes, so the actual plot of the episode, uh, aside from the back and forth of, um, like, captains in a battle, uh, is twofold. It's one, the Romulans look like the Vulcans, and they must be, um, like ancient relatives in terms of genetics and this comes up which informs the other plot which is that one of the the person at helm who is like uh who's called what's his name styles i don't styles. remember his first name yeah lieutenant styles i couldn't remember which one it was because they're all just names of non-characters uh and he is racist he's doing a racist thing he's doing a star trek fake alien racism against against spock for looking like the romulans uh and so over the course of this episode he will learn he will learn that Spock isn't that bad. <laughs> uh, and so as the episode goes on, it's just back and forth of um, the Enterprise like follows the trail of the Romulan ship and they like can't be detected because the Romulans think they're like an echo of their own cloak because yep. they can't see out why they're cloaked outside of sensors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a lot of, oh, uh, they think we're not here, so we've got a chance to surprise them. And then they attack them, and then they use their huge weapon, but the Enterprise were aware of the huge weapon, so could outrun it, so it only did like less damage as it dissipated over time. And it just goes back and forth for the full hour, and I think it's, I think it's really good. Uh, the climax of the episode is um, Kirk realizing how to beat them, firing the gun as uh, the Romulans like have a chance to escape, but are forced through pride to try to like take out the enterprise when it pretends it's dead uh and so they catch them unawares and you get a 
like <laughs> really cool conclusion of Kirk and the Romulan commander like going in another life we may have been friends because they're like respectful enemies of each other even though the Earth and the Romulans like as a, people have this long-standing animosity these are just two captains fighting each other uh, and obviously the only person to die is um, Tomlinson who is going to get married Nope. Uh, who dies in a like th- there's a gas leak in the phaser thing and then spock comes in and saves the one who was racist to spock but is not able to save tomlinson and then kirk like gives her a hug and then we end and war is sad and yeah. that's that's the that's the episode uh, worth noting, uh, this episode, uh, this episode of uh, the Romulan Commander is played by Mark Lennard, who would go on to play Sarek in TOS and TNG and right! all over the place. Uh, I knew I recognized him. Yeah, I know. Uh, this is a really good episode. This is like one of those like deeply beloved classic episodes for good reason, because it's a good, great pot boiler and the Star Trek moralizing is really good. Like there's the stuff with the Roman commander going like in another universe, we could have been friends, but it's also like as Kirk's deciding whether or not to violate Starfleet's because Starfleet's all like, you cannot start a war. We can't let that happen. No one, like everybody's expendable. If the Romulans attack, don't go into the neutral zone. Don't violate the treaty. Uh, and Kirk like waits for Starfleet to tell him what to do in the situation. And while he's waiting, he decides to go ahead and go into the neutral zone. And then after he's made the choice, he gets like the Starfleet communicated. It's like, do whatever you want. We'll back you up because Starfleet's useless. Uh, <laughs> and there's this really great scene where he's in his, uh, where he's in his quarters and just like, like chewing his nails about what he's going to do. And McCoy comes in and is like, look, there's so, there's so much diversity of life. At, he's like, uh, actually, they have the quote here. It's like, in this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of 3 million Earth-type planets, and in all the universe, 3 million million galaxies like this, and in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. Uh, t- like, tell Kirk, hey, don't just throw your life away on the like dumb politicking. You have to do what is best to save as many people as possible. Uh, because Kirk needs to be reminded that he's fucking James T. Kirk and can get everything he wants all the time. Mm-hmm. Unless it's Star Trek Three, in which I guess you can't. Wait, hang on. That's the one. Oh, right. But those Klingon bastards do kill his son. Yeah, those Klingon bastards. They killed his son. <laughs> yeah, but he forgets about that pretty much instantly. <laughs> no, because the entire plot of Star Trek Six is that he can't let go of the fact that he hates Klingons. Well, they did kill his son. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, yep. Um... It's really good. I I think I ended up liking it more than you. I thought it was like fantastic. I was like one of the best uh, just like Star Trek episodes I've seen as like an hour of television. Um, I am a sucker for any kind of like slow back and forth uh, tactical battle situation where it's all okay. This person does something what is actually representative of, of their character, and then the other character like responds with a move that like reveals more about themselves, and you get a fight scene that is just a like a character beat which is like it's basically what wrath of khan is but on a slightly smaller scale and with less yes. going on um I, th- I i don't know i haven't seen wrath of khan in ages i i no the the mechanics of the fight are very similar to wrath of khan yeah because wrath of khan's oh i'm gonna hide in here and then we're gonna yeah and the yep. nebula and stuff but uh yeah anytime that happens in star trek i love it except if it's star trek nemesis um but this is yeah i liked it a lot i thought it was fantastic everything um like by the end uh everything like came together really well and i thought it was cool just as a person who hasn't seen that much tos but 
is starting to through the show like i'm getting a feel for the episodes and just being able to enjoy them as this is a thing i know what it is and enjoy mm-hmm. rather than this is a thing that came before this stuff that i enjoy yeah uh and so it's cool to like familiarize myself enough and enjoy the actual episodes on their own terms enough to the point where it's just a thing i like mm-hmm. and not uh curiosity related to a thing i like that might be good on those terms yeah uh, so yeah it's so uh, yeah i was I had a good had a great time very very good war is sad nonsense as uh much as i like the things that you like in this episode and i do think this is a very good episode i have like my normal disquieting problems with the way star trek handles in universe bigotry and that it's offloaded <laughs> to a character that only exists for one episode yep. and there's the problem where like Styles is instantly like, oh, you look just like the Romulans. Maybe you're working with them. Maybe you're a spy. And then Kirk goes up to him and is like, there's no room for bigotry on this bridge, mister. And that's supposed to just solve it. And then it doesn't because of course it doesn't. But then like all that has to happen is Spock has to save him from that phaser room. And then he's like over it and it's just solved. And like, I know that TOS specifically is like very much about it's like heavy moralizing. Everyone learns a lesson and then the universe is reset every episode. It's just what TV was in the sixties, especially like this is explicitly what Gene Roddenberry wanted this show to be, but it's really frustrating to see a show like, deliver those messages that feel like their resolutions are entirely unearned. Like Kirk going up to this guy and being like, stop picking on my friend because he's an alien. doesn't actually solve any sort of like institutionalized bigotry. And the question of like Romulans and Vulcans in universe is like bigger than this anyway. Uh, I also think it's weird to have a scene like this about like, can we trust him? He looks like them. Maybe he's like them when Sulu's like literally right over there. Uh, as like a Japanese American who was in an internment camp when he was young, George Sakai was, uh, and it goes unremarked upon, but I think it is an interesting thing to like recognize, like this is from the sixties and a lot of this feels like cold war stuff, but I think the message that's going on with, uh, styles explicitly is like a world war two thing about like dehumanizing your enemy and everyone who looks like them or is racially tied to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not bad. It's like really good for the time. And I, it just like, what I want Star Trek to be can't like this show often can't be. And like, it's interesting to see it play out, but uh, I always, I always feel a little wanting. Uh, oh, for sure. Like I, I, I'm able to get with like, accept it more because it's like a subplot. It's not the main focus of the episode, mm-hmm. uh, nor is it like the stuff I really like about the episode. Yep. Um, I like Spock's reaction to it. I wish they had gone more into that. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because when they're sitting around and they're like, they look like Vulcans and Spock's like, they might be derived from Vulcans. We don't know, which is weird because uh, like, you know, whatever. TOS at this point feels like it's almost like dubious canon itself. Uh, But the rest of Star Trek, it is implied that the Vulcans have always known that the Romulans used to be Vulcans and then went off and like, they're the ones who rejected logic and just became like emotional monsters. Uh, I mean, that's basically what this episode settles on. Like, the canon differences in who knows what, but that's the part part that's really interesting is when Spock surmised that, he's like, if that's true and that's what they are, then we need to fire on them. They are dangerous. We have to destroy them. Like, Spock is instantly ready to just, like, destroy any Romulan, realizing what threat they could represent if they are Vulcan, like, Vulcan-like beings who have denied logic. Which is really interesting given that, uh, like, TNG implies that spock spends like a hundred years of his life trying to bring romulans and vulcans back together Mm -hmm. uh for sure and um like i wish they addressed like in a better version of this show or one that happened like years later you would address the difference between uh kirk's like 
I am going to protect my friend from the bigotry and do the good thing. And then like Spock's more, I have this perspective on this like reaction. Cause Kirk just basically shuts it out and says, this doesn't matter. We're not going to consider this. And then Spock like brings it into his own analysis of the situation. Uh, yep. And I like those like two different reactions uh, that are just, they're just kind of left there. They're not commented on as one is better than the other. Like it's not part of the theme, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, no. And like it, you say like in a better show, but like, it's totally fine for what the show is and when it like this show is over 50 years old now yeah uh, when i said better show i, I like corrected myself yeah one no for sure more. but i do want to say <laughs> okay. as we go through these tos episodes like the things that i can complain about i recognize that in historical context often were still like really pr- interesting and progressive ideals for their time it's really weird like we are going to live to see the date where we exist different from the original star trek as far as tng is from the original star trek in mm-hmm. the universe and that's crazy yeah, it's it's weird, and it's also it's also just because Star Trek has gone on this long that like almost all the complaints we're gonna have about this specific stuff has been tackled in about ten different ways across the se- series. Oh yeah, no, uh, for sure. So like, there's a multitude of approaches of how all these themes have been tackled, and I think yep. like that that makes it easier to talk about and pick at. Uh, two things before we move on. Uh, one, uh, it is interesting and a little weird that there's a church on the Enterprise. <laughs> Because not only do they do the wedding there, but she's like there praying for her lost fiance at the end of the episode. Yep. Uh, and that's just very un-Star Trek to me. It's cool because I think of TNG specifically, especially early on, as like a, haha, we have logic our way out of religion. Oh, <laughs> just wait, because we haven't watched a lot of the like like alien of the week tos episodes that well, show is a hundred sh- like more that good. than tng ever was great yeah because i know that comes from like gene roddenberry specifically yes uh so i'm ass- i'm assumed it would be here but then like this episode is more yeah no there's like, there's it- a lot of like weird atheistic paternalism in original star trek okay that doesn't surprise me but it was strangely absent here because like yep. it ends with them going we don't know about death it's all unfair it's yep. all wrong <laughs> Um, the other thing I wanted to say before I move on, just a bit of trivia, Kirk's speech of like, it has been the honor since the days of sea for any captain to join two crewmen in matrimony is literally the exact same speech Picard gives at Keiko and Miles's wedding. And it's great. I love Good. that they did that. Good. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice bit of like callback writing. Well done, folks. Yep. Yep. That is one episode. That is one episode. So our next episode, uh, little lighter fare, uh, maybe, depending on how you view it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> a little. Is Mirror Mirror, uh, season two, episode 10 of the original series. It first aired 6th of October, 1967. It is written by Jerome Bixby and directed by Mark Daniels. In this episode, uh, it opens with uh, Kirk, uh, Scotty, McCoy, and Uhura on this homeworld of these pacifists that have a bunch of dilithium crystals. And they're like, we don't want to give you the dilithium because you might be able to use it as a weapon. And Kirk's like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. We'll give you a, like some time to think it over before we leave. And he's like, it doesn't matter if you wait five hours or 500 years. We're not going to change our minds. And Kirk's like, well, I respect that. I'm going to give you the time anyway. And then they go to beam up and there's a weird like ion, ion storm. Of course, it's an ion storm. It's always some sort of stupid storm um, as, as they're beaming up and they have to like increase the transporter power and what actually happens is as they beam up they accidentally cross over into the mirror universe where 
the mirror Kirk, Scotty, McCoy, and Uhura are beaming up from a planet at the same time. The same planet. Uh, but in the mirror universe, everything is evil. It is the ISS Enterprise, which is part of the Terran Empire, where everyone goes around dominating the galaxy and rules through terror and pain. And everyone assassinates each other to get promotions. And they're here to just, like, vaporize the planet if they don't give everyone the crystals. And now that good Kirk is there and, like, like they've swapped places, Kirk's like, this cannot stand. And so it's Kirk trying to get along in this mirror universe and not get discovered as uh, he tries to undermine everything and meets mirror Kirk's like lady, like the captain's woman um, and deals with that. And mirror Spock, who famously has a goatee because he's evil uh, is there to like figure it out and deduce that Kirk isn't who he says he is and gets to the bottom of it. Uh, Shenanigans happen of everyone trying to kill everybody. And then Spock comes and then they have a conversation and Kirk's like, Hey, look, Spock, this is not sustainable. If you don't fix this, the whole thing is going to collapse. You have the power. You have the mind. You can save the world and teach people a better way. And Spock's like, I don't know if I can actually do that. I'm only one man. And Kirk's like, one man can change the universe as they beam back to the original universe. Where in the only scene of it, uh, Spock has like jailed Amir Kirk and Mirahura and Scotty and McCoy for just being the most belligerent assholes in the universe. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a good cutaway gag. Um, this is, of course, the introduction of the mirror universe or the idea of the mirror universe in like fiction. Like whenever someone is like evil version with a goatee, it comes from this episode, uh, even though mirror Spock is not actually that evil. Uh, but uh, this episode's really goofy for the most part. There's a lot of like Uhura fending off Sulu being a creep and Uhura gets a lot of like scenes where she is just cool. Also, because their costumes are like the sexy evil versions, Uhura's just rocking like the, like the most ripped six pack of anybody in the sixties ever. It's, it's intense. Yeah, no, she like must have fucking done all the crunches working up to this episode. Cause, uh, she looks good. Uh, yeah. meanwhile, Kirk's just in like a cutoff vest being like, I guess kind of like ripped for the sixties, but like, he is just like a dude. It's weird what the standards are for like bulky men ha- like have changed in 50 years. Just put him next to like Wolverine. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this episode is like, while it's like, while the plot is like, Oh, this horrible universe where there's agony booths and everyone rules under fear is actually just the goofiest campiest bullshit. And it's a great time. Uh, I'm sad that there was no TNG mirror universe, but I'm very excited to get into it in DS nine and future star Treks and stuff. Uh, cause there's so much mirror universe, like books and comics that we'll undoubtedly get into and laugh at. Uh, the mirror universe is great. Uh, I love it. I love it. It's such a ridiculous episode. I'm glad that for some reason I thought that TOS had less intentional comedy. Um, yeah, no, it seems like they know. They like yeah, they totally know. Like from day one, clearly they knew what the show was, uh, which is very good because it's just it's just nonsense. It's just like a lot of Kirk going hmm hmm hmm, and everyone going oh. He's not acting like Kirk. That must be a secret evil scheme. And that's basically his defense for the entire episode as they try to figure out, okay, what's he doing? What's Why has he not killed the people? Well, he must be trying to do something secret and evil. Yep. <laughs> and that works at basically 40 of the 50 minutes. Yeah, like the only person who even suspects that he might not be hatching an evil scheme is Spock, and that's because Spock is the most brilliant person in the universe, right? So... Yeah, he has, like, the powers of being Spock, so he can tell. But everyone else just thinks, well, he's clearly doing an evil scheme. There couldn't be anything other than an evil scheme. Yep. 
And so you just have this universe which couldn't exist. And it's weird because it makes the, that point in the episode that this is unsustainable and is clearly, like, a nonsense universe where the only end is everyone dies. Yeah, because uh, uh, Kirk, Kirk asks Spock, like, you've run the projections. How long do you think the universe is going to stand? And, like, like the implication is that the whole thing is going to, have, like, quickly collapse after this point unless someone comes and shows a better way. Uh, and, like, mild spoilers for DS9, but the Terran Empire totally does get fucked over by this exact thing. Yep. Oh, God. Those DS9 mirror episodes are good. Yep. <laughs> uh, this is an episode where, like, the broad strokes are kind of whatever, but I love the little touches. I love that Kirk... Like, Mirror Kirk has been, like, ruling his ship through this crazy view screen that he, like, stole from an alien that just uh, lets him vaporize people. <laughs> He just has a button and he can kill anyone at will. Anyone. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh, no wonder he's like the captain of the Enterprise if that's the power he has. Even if Kirk was not like the most evil of people, he's the one with like the fucking God mode button, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it very clear that you just get power by being the one lucky enough to murder people faster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like there's a scene where Chekhov holds kirk up and is like i'm gonna assassinate you and move up in rank that's how things work around here as you know kirk that's how things work around here (laughs) gonna explain the plot of the universe to you yeah uh and then is immediately saved by other people who are like well it's actually better to be more loyal to you than to Chekhov. maybe i'll go up in rank and then kirk just punches him in the face to stay in cover yep (laughs) and everyone goes yeah seems fair she should punch him in the face uh one of my favorite moments in this episode is the cutaway to the normal Enterprise as they oh, drag Mirror Kirk into the brig, and he is just like a scheming, bellowing madman. He like goes up to the br- like the brig force field, and he's like talking to Spock. He's like, "What do you? What's your game? What's going on here? Are you trying to usurp, the sh- usurp my power on the ship? I can give you whatever you want. I can give you planets. I can give you women." And it is like Shatner acting in a way that like is not like Shatnerian in the way people think of it. And it like, you, you forget that he is like, Kirk is not like a role where he gets to do a lot of capital A acting. And when he gets the chance, he fucking kills it. And I love that stuff. Yeah. It's great. It's great. <laughs> Cause the whole thing is like, Oh, in the mirror universe, because everyone's evil, everyone just assumes that people are evil all the time. Yep. So you can hide who you are better because no one trusts you anyway. And then in the in the real universe, the second you come in and like, I am Kirk, I am evil, everyone go, oh, well, he's clearly been replaced with a duplicate from an ultimate universe. Lock him up. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Takes them about five minutes to figure it out. Because th- there's like a tension for the first 20 minutes of the episode as they go, oh, he must be over there. I wonder what damage he's done. And it doesn't cut then, but it cuts. <laughs> That's the next time, and you realize, oh, that was fine. It's fine. It's all yeah, fine. Yeah, no, they immediately figured out the problem through the break because Star Trek characters are very good at just figuring out problems like this because they just talk to each other and understand each other. Uh, it's 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 great. Yeah. Mirror Universe is goofy. I, we watched this episode mostly to repair for future Mirror Universe in my DS9 rewatch that I talked about earlier. Uh, uh, but I enjoy it, and I'm really... I'm really excited to read that comic about buff-ass Picard someday. <laughs> He's so buff! He's so buff. I don't... I mean, uh, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Yes, but everything about the universe is wrong. It's true. Remember Mirror Universe Kira? We're not going to talk about specifics, but... We can't talk about Kira. Mirror Universe Kira. We can't do that. 
No, the world is not prepared. But <laughs> the world will shit. never be prepared. Someone yesterday was like talking to you about the horniest Star Trek scene, and I immediately googled Mirror Universe Kira. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's ooh, it's a lot. Yep. It's a lot. Uh, Spock's goatee is really interesting to me also before we move on because it's not the same color as his normal hair and that's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Like, does he put highlights in his, does he put highlights in his beard or does he dye his hair straight black? That's my we'll question. We'll never know. What's yeah. more logical? Uh, that they didn't have the budget to get him a good goatee. <laughs> they just like found the best fake beards and stuck it on him. Yep. Oh, oh, just a, another weird thing. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but the computer on the Enterprise in uh, in the Mirror Universe is a male voice, and it is James Duhon not doing Scotty's accent. And it oh. is very <laughs> obvious that it is him doing it. Yep. Uh, it, <laughs> it is easy to, like, talk about. And I have, like, before I watched it that regularly, like... Oh, haha, Scotty's accent, it's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous, though. <laughs> it is a lot. It is, it is a broad cartoon. Like, the same way that Chekhov's voice is a broad cartoon. But but Scotty's, like, in this, and then he's in TNG, and also the movies, like, it's a whole it's a whole thing. Yeah. It, and it, unlike Chekhov, like, Scotty, James Duhon, just looks like a different person 20 years later. Yeah, no, the, but the voice original stays. series James Duhon is unrecognizable. <laughs> Yeah, but the voice stays, so it's an extra layer of weirdness. Yep. Uh, another highlight for me is the ending being, like, another quality bit of Kirk McCoy, Spock, like, banter. Which, the way it always goes is they say something like, Haha, you're a stupid Vulcan. And then Kirk goes, and then like, uh, Spock goes, actually, you're a stupid human. And go, oh, where, yeah, he was <laughs> like, I found, I found your mirror counterparts refreshing. <laughs> They're so much more honest than you. <laughs> And then Kirk's like, I'm not sure, but I think we've been insulted. Yeah, McCoy's like, McCoy I'm does. sure. <laughs> <laughs> McCoy McCoy is like doesn't ever get a whole lot to do, but McCoy might be my favorite TOS character. I love him. I love him in this. He's definitely the best uh, Kelvin character. You know, just the fucking cattiest human being on Earth. Yep. Uh, before we move on, it's like pivoting off that... Uh, I wanted to talk quickly about just the fact that there's like a whole Star Trek convention going on this weekend or whatever, uh, as we record. And literally an hour ago, everyone was tweeting about uh, Carl Urban, who is the only part of that universe that everyone actually likes. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I actually, like, I don't think that cast is bad at all. I like most of them. I think, like, I'm kind of whatever on Zachary Quinto's Spock, but Spock has been very poorly written in those movies, so it's not his fault. <laughs> sure, but that was like... Even while Into Darkness was happening, everyone still hold on to liking Carl Urban. That was the yeah. one thing. Oh, he's his McCoy is amazing. Yeah, he's great. I'm glad that that's just a like everyone agrees he's great. Yeah, uh, I've I've liked Carl Urban forever, so I'm glad that he's in things people enjoy still. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's our episodes once again. Uh, next time we're watching Conscious of the King and Friday's Ch- Child. Um, we're gonna go to a break, and when we come back, we're talking DS Nine. So get ready and punch out if you don't want all the DS Nine spoilers immediately, because that's gonna happen.
we are ready to talk about Twilight, uh, the first Mission Gamma book. Before we do that, Jackson, for everyone listening, what is going on in the state of the DS9 universe right now before this book starts? Uh, so in the DS9 relaunch, uh, we have Kira in command of uh, DS9 now. Uh, Ro is security chief. That has been happening in the last few books. Um, the first officer is someone called Elias Vaughn, who is basically Star Trek Big Boss. His daughter is on the ship called Prin Tenme, uh, on, the, on the station called Prin Tenme. Uh, everything and else they is basically hate each as other. it was. They hate each other so much. Uh, everything, everyone else is there. Everything else is like as it was in, in the status quo. There's also um, one more uh, new cast member called uh, Shah, who is an Andorian. Uh, if you haven't listened to our old episodes, that's, that's it. That's who's on the ship now. You should read those books or listen to those episodes. Uh, I think I think you should mention uh, two people who are in a continuing bad idea relationship. <laughs> yes, well, yes, I just meant at, at the end of the series, but yes, uh, Ezri and Bashir are still together in this book. They have been together from Avatar Book One and continue to be together now. Together now, it has been doomed from the start. I have no idea how long it will last. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing how long this doomed relationship is going to continue. Yep. Um, this book might be the healthiest depiction of that relationship we've seen so far. Yeah, that's saying something. Because <laughs> uh, it goes into some rocky places, but they deal with it pretty well. Yeah. The changes since last time, because we have skipped a book, which was as part of a Gateways crossover, uh, which is a seven-book series crossing over a bunch of things. I read it. It is about a uh, a, a planet which gets uh, like poisoned and has to be evacuated, so you know it doesn't matter. So you have to <laughs> if you have to like if the plot is a bunch of people have to be relocated from their planet due to nebulous stuff that that's you, a TNG <laughs> episode where the B plots are going to be really good that's what that always means yeah uh, and the B plot that happens in that that is important that sets up something is Quark and Rolaren are doing some undercover bullshit together uh, like fucking with the Orion syndicates uh, and they end up bringing an Orion girl back to DS9 uh, and that book ends with like Quark signing her to be a dabber girl but she's like nah I'm your business partner now fuck you yeah, her uh, name is Trier, right? Her, na- her name is Trier, and that's where we begin Twilight. So, uh, let me get my notes. I have actual notes, especially for the early parts of this book where it's like a lot is happening. Um, yes. Oh, do you want to mention what's going on with Cassidy and Kira and uh, Jake Sisko? Uh, right, God, there's, there's, there are so many plots. This yeah. book is 504 pages long. Yes, it's a really <laughs> big book. But what's, where, what, where are they when we start the book? When we start the book, uh, Kira has been attainted, which means she is not allowed to practice Bajoran religion. She is not like forbidden from like believing in it, but she is pra- like forbidden from formally taking place in like reading the the sacred texts or going to to the temples to pray. Uh, and she's not even wearing her earring, which I, is a thing that my brain can't even conceptualize when like imagining her character. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, she is doing that while being in command of DS Nine. So there's a big tension between here uh between her and uh the like people on bajor uh kira uh um cassidy is currently living in a town on bajor uh waiting for uh the child of the emissary to be born um and just kind of hanging out right now nothing's going on jake isn't there because jake went into a wormhole two books ago and everyone's like where's jake gone is he dead but uh, it's because been it's... three books at this point 
oh god it's been a while yeah no and jake's been in that wormhole for more like it like they they imply that it's been like two months since anyone last heard from jake yep it's weird because they're like oh no where's jake gone and everyone's clearly panicked about him but there's also because it's star trek you know that jake's gonna be like fine and he isn't just gonna die in a wormhole and in the course of this book uh nog and cassidy talk about it and they're like jake's probably fine he's jake <laughs> <laughs> yeah like they know they can't they know it's star trek and everyone reading this knows it's star trek so they can't play up that tension as like a source of drama so instead they just make the characters aware of the universe they're in and they go yeah we'll look for him but it'll probably work out there's probably a plot there <laughs> yep uh is there anything else that i need to bring up before uh, we, there before is a in? there is another new character that we talked we forgot about that is living on ds9 hang on odo I, sent <laughs> Fuck, how did I forget Tyranitar? Yep. There is a Gem Hadar on the spaceship, on the station. Tyranitar is the data of the DS9 relaunch series in that he is uh, from um, uh, from the Dominion. He is a Gem Hadar who has been raised by the Dominion and has fought in the war and like killed a bunch of people. But because Odo, a founder, has ordered him to just literally go to the Alpha Quadrant and observe, he will follow uh, Kira's orders. He will not hurt anyone. But yep. there is a bunch of tension because... He's just an actual Jem'Hadar living on uh, on yeah. uh, the Bajoran space station, like months after the end of the, the and war. And he's he's like twenty three, so he is like the most badass Jem'Hadar in the entire world. Yep. In the book we skipped, he like goes to another universe and fights the greatest hunter of the universe and oh, great. gets Good. ripped as hell. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's it's very dumb. Okay, so let's get into this book. Uh, this book again is Twilight. It is written by David R. George the Third. It was released the first of September two thousand two. As Jackson said, it's 504 pages, and it like while it is a very good book, and I enjoyed it a lot, it's a it's long. It's long. It's very long. It's gonna be hard to summarize because it is a lot of disparate plots. It is very, very good at character moments, yep. but uh, the plot's not that complicated. Um, I want to point out, uh, I forgot to do it from Mirror Mirror, but this book takes place in the year 2376. That's where we're at. 2376. Yep. Uh, over 100 years after uh, the episodes we watched. It's um, exactly 100 years after Battle of Terror. No, 110. It was 66. 66, right. Shit. Yeah, because Star Trek is 300 years after when it aired. That's like the whole reason it's 2266. Oh, is that... Hmm. Yep. <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, yeah, no. Like, it's, you, when you realize it, it's like, oh, of course they picked that. That's kind of hokey in like a non-Star Trek way. But like the rest of the universe is so fleshed out now that it's hard to remember. That's why it's that number. Oh, right. Okay. Good. Yep. That's dumb. <laughs> yep. Um, so I'm going to do my best to summarize this book. There's a lot going on. Uh, Jackson will interrupt as necessary. Uh, I'll probably interrupt a little less because we are going to do... Uh, we'll see how it goes because we don't have the like the most rock hard plan. But uh, we are going to do a plot summary and then go back and touch upon the character subplots and the moments because it's not... Uh, it, the book supports that kind of summary and uh, that kind of discussion. Yep. Okay, so we open with the Defiant mopping up the problems of that book Jackson read that doesn't really matter. Uh, and it doesn't matter to the point where the Defiant basically gets almost totally blown up and Vaughn thinks Prin Tenme is dead just to open the book with an action scene, but none of that actually matters. I want uh, to be clear that in the other book, the 
this whole thing, whatever, there's a race that's very, like, grumpy, uh, and they, that book is like, yes, we successfully negotiated them helping us evacuate the planet. So, that um, plan, that that race, uh, I think I wrote it down, um, the Jirata, that yes. is from a season one or season two next-gen episode, where huh. uh, Picard has to learn, like, this weird insectoid language to talk to them, and, like, Troy's, like, coaching him through it the entire episode. <laughs> okay, good, because they do mention, like, oh, there was, an, there was a contact, but then it couldn't be, like established and he mistranslated something so they didn't talk to them for 50 yep. years um and so that's all good fun anyway that book concludes with oh we we did it we managed for them to not want to kill us we did it it was great success to star trek literally the next book begins they've changed their mind and they're murdering us <laughs> yeah but not in any way that actually matters <laughs> no. just enough to give you an action scene because there's not another action scene for like 200 pages <laughs> yeah so where we're at, the Defiant is about to be taken into the Gamma Quadrant after they repair the damage done. Just enough to have a bunch of plots get started that aren't going to wrap up. <laughs> yeah, just enough <laughs> to give us time to have like four weeks on the station of plots happening. Yep. Uh, they're going to take it, the, the Defiant into the Gamma Quadrant for like a, I think they say three month long exploration mission. Yes, it yeah. is a three month mission. Uh, to go, because the thing with DS9 that I forgot that's really interesting rewatching it is they have this wormhole, and because when they the, their first sojourns run them smack dab into the Dominion, they don't actually spend a lot of time at all in the Gamma Quadrant, so they don't know anything about it yet, still. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole talk about how a lot of the Gamma Quadrant isn't actually Dominion territory. <laughs> yeah, but they just never found that out because the war happened. So, now we get Star Trek. <laughs> yep. Um... Meanwhile, uh, Kira is like having her spiritual crisis. She's sad about being attainted. Uh, the thing with Kira is that because she has like been devout her entire life, there's this really great scene where she realizes she like she looks at the books that she's not allowed to read because of her attainment. And is like, I know all the words in those books. I don't need them anymore. I just have the Bajoran faith in my heart, and I really like that about Kira. She's got um, faith in the heart. Yeah, god damn it shut up uh, <laughs> you can't hand me that one okay. uh, a ship a ship comes from the federation bringing admiral akaar uh who is this big giant man um the reason we're watching uh friday's child is that he is introduced in that sh- episode of the original series as a baby at the end of it i think so uh that is why he is named admiral leonard james akaar because he's named after uh kirk and mccoy uh oh did they have a baby together I think they helped deliver it. I don't actually know what happened. I don't, I've I'm, never seen I'm, it. That's what my assumption is. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, he's there and like interrogating Kira and she's very upset. And he brought with him, uh, what's her name? It is, I have it written down. Um, uh, Akar is bringing with uh, him uh, Trivethra, who is one of, uh, uh, he goes by Shar, right? I keep calling him Chathane, but he had, like, they use his familiar name. He's uh, Thirashar Chathane. But yes, yeah. he is Shah Chathane. Yeah, okay, Shar. Uh is Char's one of Char's parents. Uh she is like the Andorian delegate to the Federation. Like she's bi- she's very important in the Federation government. Uh and they're there to meet uh with uh Prime Minister Shakar, who is from DS9 episodes I haven't seen yet. Uh, or in my rewatch, so I I don't remember him. Uh but you, Kira knows you- him. You know it's based on a TV show where they've like picked characters because there is a character called Akar who is negotiating with a character called Shakar, and they have nothing. There's no connection. Nothing yes, has to do with but each other. They note that Akar is pronounced with both A's pronounced. So, which would and- be really great if you were read weren't reading it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, which is why I keep saying it like that. There is a stop between the two A's and Akar. So, yeah. um, 
Anyway, uh, they're meeting for uh, what is like considered, oh, maybe they're here to reconsider Bajor's application to the Federation. But no, they're actually here to like do the actual delegation. Yes, no, does Bajor get into the Federation? And everyone's very tense about it. And when Kira finds out and Akar is like grilling her, she is very like upset by all the questioning because she thinks that he doesn't have faith in her because of her attainment. And uh, there's a lot of drama happening. Um, yeah, uh, we'll talk about that. Like the, yep. the scenes with Kira and Akar are, uh, are, are great. <laughs> yep. Uh, in meanwhile, in other B plots involving Kira, Kira <laughs> is trading with Tyranitar uh, on the holodeck, oh, and it's no. great. Uh, because Kira, we always forget because she doesn't get to do it much anymore. Kira is like a total badass freedom fighter, terrorist leader, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, now she mostly sits behind a desk, but Tranatar is like, I'm going to teach you how to be better at fighting. Uh, and that part's great. And then Kira's like, Tranatar, maybe you should be better at other things other than fighting. And Tranatar, uh, has this plot where he's like, I'm tired of sitting in ops all the time. I'm going to go look around the station. But because Tranatar is who he is, like, he goes onto the Defiant first. He's like, it's a war warship i know warships i'm gonna go to warship and he runs into nog while the repairs are happening and nog freaks out because nog lost a leg to, to the to the jemhadar in the war and nog hates uh uh jemhadar and is very scared blah blah blah. so trantar gets in his head that he's gonna cloak when he goes around the station so he like goes to the nursery while he's shrouded and is like standing there and then like a kid runs into his leg and he everyone's afraid of him because you know he's a jemhadar in the middle of a nursery <laughs> There's clearly a scene where this kid is walking in and he's like standing too close to the doorway. So he gets bumped in, de-shrouds, and then there's just the moment where everyone like turns and looks and there's the cinematic pause and then everyone screams and runs out. <laughs> yep. Uh, he shrouds into Quark's bar and Quark is able to hear him even though he's shrouded and Jem- and, and uh, Tarantar's like, I didn't even know Frankie could do that. But everyone freaks out and that causes enough of disruption that uh, Quark complains to Rolaren. And so Kira has like a talk with Tyranitar that's great because it's like while Tyranitar is like in the hollow suite doing like super advanced calculus and kira's like i thought you were a warrior and he's like math is part of being a warrior i have to know how to pilot a ship and kira's like i don't understand any of this and he's like what kind of warrior are you i thought you were good at stuff uh and it's great because tyranitar like kira has this moment where she's like if tyranitar is this good at everything while he's a soldier what would happen if the jemhadar thought they could be anything else and it's great i like it a lot uh yeah, that that's because you walk. She walks in, and he's just got his own maths class set up as like a regular Holosuite program, and it's fantastic. And that's more or less the end of. Uh... Yeah. Oh no! There's the scene with Quark, uh, which I actually forget what happened, but you mentioned it, and I want you to remember it if you can. Uh, so the scene with Quark is is one of my favorite scenes in the book. It's the conclusion of the Tyranitar plot, uh, which is basically Tyranitar going up to uh, just in the holosuite and Quark is terrified of him, but persists enough going like, um, just discusses whether the founders are gods. And he goes like, uh, if the founders are gods, can they be wrong? And he's like, no, they're right. The founders are always right. And then, go, and then Quark's like, yeah, but Odo's wrong. He has been wrong all these times. Actually wrong. These are things that he did. Uh, and so they basically just have this discussion about what does it mean to like give yourself to something like that? Uh, is it demeaning of them to think of them as like 
uh gods because it like takes away their complexity uh and it's great like he he actually gets through to tyranitar in a way that kira is unable to just yeah. because he's quark because he's actually the best character in all of star trek the problem <laughs> is in section 31 abyss uh we had the fact where those jemhadar that were created realized that they didn't have like a god to worship and the idea of being like created beings but without the worship like was so intense for them it drove them crazy into like a blood frenzy I assume that's not going to happen with Tranitar, but it is like a, it is going to be hard for him to deal with that if he ends up realizing that the founders are fallible. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it doesn't like go anywhere right now. No, it's no, just, like, this, this is like moment. actually the end of Tranitar's stuff in this book. So that's yeah. why I was covering it. It's like a brief moment where Quark just like just slightly penetrates uh, into his shell. And it's, it's great. Quark is so good. Yep. Um, meanwhile, uh, Quark is dealing with uh, Trier being there as the Dabo girl. Uh, he wants to order around like he does every one of his employees and she's not having it. And she keeps going behind his back to the point where she like hires this like cute buff Bajoran guy to be like a Dabo boy. And Quirk's like, you can't do this. Like, I don't have Dabo boys. And also I'm not paying for a new employee. Like he's fired and you're fired, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, 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 give it a week. And if it doesn't work out, I will like get rid of him and I, you don't have to pay me. You don't have to pay him. It'll be fine. And because she is smart and has lobes for business, uh, it brings in like this huge female clientele that Quark had never catered to. And suddenly like his bar is still like hopping and Quark is delighted and Trey is delighted. And that guy gets to stay. And now Quirks is an equal opportunity exploiter. And I don't know. <laughs> uh, it is a good stuff. Uh, Trey is great. I love having someone who is like a business foil for Quark. Cause uh, Rom sure as hell was never that. <laughs> It's great because, yeah, she, like, reads him instantly and knows, okay, uh, clearly this guy is actually the most ineffectual, like, he puts on a front, but he can't tell anyone what to do, so I'm just going to, like, make the right decisions for him yep. uh, while he's having his own nonsense with Ro. Yep. And meanwhile, uh, Ro and Quirk are getting cozy and, uh, like, start hanging out and they're clearly flirting with each other and neither of them are sure if they are flirting because it, like, gives them an in to, like, manipulate the other one because Ro needs Quirk for inter information and, like, back-channel dealings and Quirk needs Ro on his side because he needs to get away with shady shit and not get arrested. Well, um, in, in Avatar, like, Quirk was super infatuated with Ro. Yes. Uh, just because he's Quirk. And that's kind of now passed and they've settled into this, like, really nice, just mutual relationship of we we sometimes flirt but we mostly just like do things uh and as the book goes on it's just this like figuring out where they stand with each other yep. uh the main beat of this plot is when like quark starts flirting with treya in front of ro and ro's like visibly like uh-uh what are you fucking doing man yeah no i like it because it starts out of they are both lying to themselves about why they are hanging out with each other <laughs> Yeah. In the and exact like same way. And like the fact that they both realize that and both realize that they can't keep acting the ways they've been. Like Ro can't be a cop around Quark all the time. And Quark can't be like this performative lech around Ro because it like they keep hurting each other and it's dumb and bad. Yeah, there's a great scene where they like have a not date, but he puts on this like gross, awful cologne. <laughs> yeah. And Ro's like, you gotta just not put that on. Oh, well, he's like, can I ask you a question? Or she's like, can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah, sure. And it's like, do you think women like that perfume? And he's like, well, not anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's great. And and there's a lot of like, Quirk like 
it's weird because like Quirk doesn't actually get like hurt and like thrown out on his ass like emotionally at all very often. And it's nice to see. Um, Deodor George the third wrote a book with Armin Shimmerman about Quirk that we are gonna read someday. Oh, and you can tell read. because there's a lot of really good, like interesting Quirk development in this book. Where like this is happening at the same time he's like catering for this Federation delegation to answer the like whether Bajor joins the Federation and he doesn't know about it, and he finds out like after the fact it is like terrified because if Bajor joins the Federation, he's basically out of a job because the, the station will become a Federation station and Federation don't use money and it's a mess. And this is happening as him and Rower are like fighting but aren't able to talk about it because they're both busy with Star Trek shit and it's really good to watch them like bounce through this anxiety especially Quark who needs to be taken down a bit and like is humbled in like a really good character building way yeah uh, especially as also like Ro is Ro finds out about the Starfleet thing and knows the uh, the Bajora militia who she currently works for on DS9 is going to be folded into Starfleet if yeah, they join if they, the Federation if they join the Federation <laughs> everyone gets commissions but Every Federation officer hates Rolaren for betraying Starfleet to the Maquis. Yeah, and so she's like, fuck, I'm not going to get forgiven for that. And even if I did, I, would I want to be a Starfleet officer again just to stay where I'm working? Would they even let me? And so you get this really nice moment uh, where both Ro and Quark are like terrified of the same thing for similar reasons. Yep. And they both are, like, commiserating, and that's when they're like, oh, we're, like, actually into each other, and it's, like, a thing now. And we're, like, clinging to each other in this moment because we both are sympathetic towards each other's plight, but we also are just, like, into each other, and it's really good. Yeah, it it works really well. I am, like, shocked at how well they managed to, like, merge that plot with the idea of what the Federation is with the idea of, like, these are the two characters who are going to be the most, like, fucked up by this uh, basically this ideology taking over a place which they've called home for, ne- yep. for like either five months or ten well, years. I also really like a relationship, like a Ferengi relationship that's not played for laughs because like everything in the fr- like with the Ferengi is played really broadly as like comedy because it's like, oh, they're gross little troll frog guys, right? But like mm-hmm. him and Ro can just be in a relationship and it be like two people that is complex and interesting and like emotional. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. The thing that like I thought was really interesting, and we're just going to talk about it before we move on to the other plots, because this kind of wraps up here, is they're both afraid of what's going to happen uh, when Bajor joins the Federation, um, but they don't talk to anybody about it. And it brings me back to that thing that was mentioned in Avatar Book 1, where Kira is watching everyone talk in the conference room and mentions, like, this is the thing the Federation has. This is, like, their, like, superpower. The Federation are incredible communicators and will always clearly state their stances and views with each other. And Quirk and Rose problems and anxieties are real, but they, if they talk to Kira or talk to anybody like in higher power than them, like someone could probably give them an out and would give, will give them an out eventually. But because they don't communicate and they don't know how to communicate because they're not Federation people, they just sit in their anxiety forever. Well, I'm assuming that's going to be like a future for Kira because of the way this book ends with uh, the final. Oh, for sure. But like, uh, to me, like their failure to like, like row, doesn't bring this up to Kira and they're like, they, they have this friendship that's like slowly growing and like Kira has her own disquiet about Bajor joining the Federation. But because Ro is so in her own head and doesn't have this like Starfleetness to her and like everyone, like Starfleet people hate her because she is not Starfleet. Uh, she is, she's not capable of communicating in the same way that Quark, because he is an alien is not able to communicate and they just make their lives harder because of it. And I like the way that that's built out of the stuff that like Avatar built as like the thing, the Federation is like Star Trek people communicate. That's why they're good at stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think this this book does a really good job of like balancing 
Because uh, this this subplot is balanced against another subplot that we'll talk about when we get to Shah, uh, and even like Nog to an extent. Like DS Nine as a show and in these books have aliens who are like both either go into or resist the idea of the Federation, and is able to show like sometimes the Federation is this like super gross colonial thing that impedes on your life and your way of like being as a person, and sometimes it's this escape of a very uh, like Shah specifically is able to express himself in a way that doesn't line up with very strict Andorian cultural norms and it's like an out from that i like mm. that it's able to be both things at once and neither are less valid and this yep. book is uh, like because of its length and its complexity of just 1200 subplots it's able to do all those things at once without them competing i really yeah. like that so uh let's get into uh the char stuff uh before yes. they leave because that's where it all matters so uh <laughs> we mentioned that uh Trivrethra is there who's char's mother uh one of his parents i guess and they've been te- they've been teasing in these books that char like she wants char to go back to andorra and or for stuff for like reasons that are not clear but are clearly related to like familial obligation and this book straight up meant like states that the andorians need like it seems they don't explicitly state it, but it seems very clear that the Andorians have like a population problem and like the way of life and Andor is like falling apart because they need the way Andorians breed is they need four people in a mating pair to have children. And in a world where like the universe is open and everyone can just go everywhere, apparently getting four people together and have kids is like a really hard thing to do. And especially in this instance, because Char is the child of like a very pop, like very influential Andorian, uh, but also is fucked off to Starfleet and ignored his breeding group. Uh, she wants to convince him to go back to Andor and have kids and get with his pair, his uh, like the rest of his mating pair, who he all he all likes. Uh, yeah. And but she brings them on board to like manipulate him into going like on the eve of him going into the Gamma Quadrant, and he fucking flips out as he should because it's like the cruelest thing to do. Yeah, like the second the weeks before he goes to the Gamma Quadrant, or like the night before it is, I think. Like no, goes- no, no, it's it's a couple days before because okay. the night before is when he spends the night with the like really sad girl. And right, okay, promises so, yes. that he that they can stay in his quarters and like I will come back and then I will go to Andor. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so he's like, oh hey, I, everyone's here. You've brought everyone, and then all of them turn to him and they're like, you're coming back to us, right? You're gonna do. This. You wouldn't abandon us. You wouldn't do that to us, would you? And he is like torn between in a very relatable way, like torn between not wanting to let down people you really care about and also just. Uh, filled with anger at the abuse of parental power. Yep. Uh, and it, it nails that kind of, like, moment. Yep. Uh, and there's a good scene, like, later on, where it specifically says that I wanted to mention about the Andor, like, situation. The having bond mates from, like, being assigned them as, like, in your youth is something that was established 300 years ago in Andor to, like, fight against the population problem. Because had yeah. they not forced everyone to like okay this is your obligation the race would have already died out yeah uh but yeah so Shara's is like i'm gonna go on this mission and when i come back i will go with you to andor i will have these kids i'll have a kid and i will fulfill my obligation but i need to go on this one mission and that's where we leave before all that stuff happens uh he is three months before retirement <laughs> <laughs> um Let's see. What else do we got? So Nog ran into Renatar, as I mentioned, was really fucked up. And he goes to Cassidy Yates, who's living on Bajor, trying very hard to not be bothered by anything in the world as she is very pregnant and just tired of everyone's shit. Uh, Cassidy Yates is my favorite because she's just a normal person in Star Trek plots and hates every minute of it. 
It's so good. Like, she keeps going by the fact that she loves the people she loves. And she loves Nog, she loves Jake, she loves, like, Cisco. Like, she has filmed these real connections. But she doesn't have time for this crap. Yep. So Nog runs into Tyranitar and like the way Nog reacts, it's like, oh, Nog's going to complain to Kira and get like Tyranitar removed from the station or thrown in jail or something. Like it seems very extreme. And like Nog is like at a state of panic and that's where we leave him. And then we come back to Nog like on Bajor visiting uh, Cassidy Yates. And they have this quiet moment where like she's like, hey, Nog, what's up? I haven't seen you in a while. And he's like, oh, I'm fine, you know, getting ready for the mission. And you realize that Nog, because it's from Cassidy's perspective, you realize that Nog has come to visit Cassidy because she's like his friend because Cassidy met Nog and Jake before she met Ben Sisko. Like she's his friend and she's like a tie to Jake who they both have like lost at this point. Cause he's in the wormhole and they don't even know that, but like Jake's lost and they know he's lost. Uh, and they have this moment where they're just like hanging out and like Nog is getting the emotional strength to get over his trauma without like throwing a fit by just like having a human connection. And I love it. It's like such a quiet, good character bit of them just hanging out, like having hot chocolate together. <laughs> Yeah, in any lesser version of this scene, he would bring up, oh, this fucking Tyranitar was there, and Cassidy would go, oh, you know, it's fine, you're gonna be, you'll be great, you're better than this. Uh, but all of that happens from Cassidy's perspective, so sh- the scene never even mentions that's what he's thinking about, and yeah. it's just a conversation about, like, oh, here's what we're thinking about, I miss Jake, I like this house, I and it is a really good centering on the things that relationships give to people that help them get through things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so quiet. This book is full of really quiet, great moments, and this is one of the best ones. Yep. That's mostly all that happens to Cassie. She's living in a um, in a village where everyone's mostly like gotten over her being like the wife of the emissary and the mother of the avatar and so she's just carrying on with her life and that's good uh i assume there will be important cassie plot stuff as we get deeper into this series but so far it's been pretty low-key i'm i hope nothing bad happens to cassie that's all i'm saying cassie's great oh dude they can't they can't no, kill I don't her. Think they, so. they can't they can't <laughs> i don't think they're gonna kill her i mean that baby's gonna be born right like yeah we're just gonna have yeah. a baby around yeah uh and then um, the stuff with Kira and Akar and everything, we're just going to get into it. They they have all these interrogations. Akar is really interesting. Before they the Defiant takes off, like, he meets uh, with Elias Vaughn, and they have a conversation about, like, Prin. Like, oh, Prin shouldn't be on the ship, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we'll get into that when we get into, like, yeah, Defiant we'll being Prin in the Gamma Quadrant. But yeah. uh, because... Uh, they are both like over a hundred years old and have just been doing this forever. They're like the <laughs> oldest, grumpiest men about being in Starfleet, and it's great. Oh, I love it. I love how old everyone is. <laughs> yep. Um, so they have that conversation, and Vaughn's like, No, I'm taking her, you can't stop me. Fuck off. We're good friends, they have dinner, whatever. And then Akar uh continues with the negotiations and they get a yes in that Bajor is not only going to join the Federation, but the signing is in like six weeks. It's like right on we're right on top of it, which I was not expecting at all. Yeah, the whole book is like, oh, this is gonna be like a renewal of the petition and then we'll have to go through the next stage and people and like there's a uh, subplots we barely even got into where like there's a rift in the in the Bajoran government or the like the the in the Bajoran faith because of the attainted stuff and it feels like Bajor, uh, Bajor could be like splitting apart at any moment with anything. Like it is a bad, tense situation, and everyone thinks, "Okay, it's gonna have to. It's gonna be. We have to be really gentle." And then the book ends with, "Okay, six weeks. You're all in fe- the Federation." And that's what. The- <laughs> yep. There's what? a really great scene where Kira, at the end of this, Kira like confronts Akar, and she's like, "Why were you treating me like shit? Why are you interrogating me?" He's like, "You think that's what was happening?" And she's like, "Well, I don't." 
Like what you were asking me so many questions. You were making me speak for my people. And he's like, no, no, no. I wanted to size up what you were about by asking you about your people, not sizing up your people by asking you. Which is great for two reasons. Because one, obviously he was doing that. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And two, it's not like he's just an asshole to her. Like it's way worse because it's more that he'll go from being really nice and like, oh no, this is really considerate and thank you. And then just suddenly like, ahaha, I have completely out diplomacy to you, you child. Yeah, he, he's just he's just like a very inscrutable old man who has seen everything, right? Like it's it's that and it's also like a bunch of comedy from the fact that Kira is a soldier who is now gonna be like the leading diplomat in this huge region of space for the for Starfleet. Yep. Uh, which is crazy to think about what her character is. And so you just get a bunch of comedy of her trying to interact as a like a Cisco like I'm gonna mediate these politics between Starfleet people. You know, oh, um, Akar basically like straight up tells her like if we get in, everyone's getting rolled in Starfleet, and I heartily recommend you to continue to be the leader of DS9 with like a commiserate rank. So I assume she'd be a commander or a captain then. No, she, he, he specifically says captain. He says okay, that cool. in the scene. Uh, I, I didn't remember because Cisco's commander when he takes over the station, so I wasn't sure. Yeah, uh, and he's, Vaughn's he's like a just a commander. Like it's weird. <laughs> well, th- th- Vaughn's rank doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Vaughn is like a commander in that they like he probably did shit that would never allow him to become a captain and also wouldn't want the responsibility. Well, no, he was an admiral, but he was like, uh, just he, he in the scene with his, like the Evangelion council, he said, we're taking my rank down. Like that was an agreement he made. Right. I thought he was always a commander, but he just like, the thing that happened is that he communicates with admirals like he is above them. I don't remember the specifics of that. Hmm. God, so much has happened. I thought that was like a formal thing, but it might have been an informal thing. Yeah, I think it's an informal thing. Okay. I like it better when it's an informal thing, so let's just believe this. (laughs) The idea that he's always just been a commander. (laughs) Yeah, he's just been a commander for like 70 years and like no one's going to stop him. Uh, and this scene basically ends with the cliffhanger of uh, Kira going, okay, so you're going to make me a captain. Uh, what the fuck are you doing about Rome? Because yeah, she no, knows the deal with Rome. The, th- the thing I want to mention is the, like, the first question is what happens to me, and the second question is immediately what happens to Roe Laren. Which is why I was like, it is amazing to me that Roe never came to Kira with her concerns, because Kira is, is, has been around the Federation enough that she is able to do this stuff like she might not be great at it yet but she is totally there and capable of this stuff i bet that's going to be like her next move because at no point is there any sign that it's going to be happening that quickly like it's always in the anxieties of the book until the very end it is just this idea this thing that will happen and as you know anyone who has been anxious about things when something is nebulously in the future you're not going to do the thing just then (laughs) but as soon as it becomes real it's like oh this is going to have to be dealt with immediately i'm excited to see how future books address that stuff yeah so that takes care of all of DS9. Um, yep, I don't yes. I don't have anything other notes. So the Defiant is finally fixed up and uh, like they add science equipment and all the characters that matter that are going is Vaughn, Shar, Ezri, Bashir. Is that everybody Nog. who matters? Nog. Nog. I think that's everybody who we care Prin. about. Prin, Prin, of course. Um and oh, I did want to mention. I did want to. I did want to mention. There is an amazing scene where uh, Quark commiserates about his woman problems to Vic Fontaine, and is great. <laughs> oh, Vic Fontaine! I love Vic uh, Fontaine. Vic Fontaine just has all of the good advice. Also, like Vic casually mentions that he just he he reminds Quark that he is the DS9 computer. <laughs> At one point, <laughs> yeah, he's like, I might not understand what all this fancy technology means, but I still have all the knowledge of every log that's happened on the station for the past eight years. <laughs> yeah, when 
quote like, oh, back in the war, this would never. And he's like, actually, I believe this oh, yes. in the right. war. It's not just the past eight years. He has all the stuff from Tarak Nor also just in his memory. And that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Vic's great. God, what a ridiculous character. I can't believe they got away with it. I know Vic is like divisive in the DS9 community. That's ridiculous. Vic's the best. I know. I we know. are pro Vic. I'm pro holodeck accidentally creating sentient beings. So, <laughs> just as a rule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, whether it's the Doctor, Vic Fontaine, Professor Moriarty, whatever. I'm all for it. Because, yeah, that whole scene is basically him going, oh, I need to make profit. I need to do this. Everything's falling apart. And then Vic's like, no, you don't. You don't care about that. You wouldn't have left me, like, on in a hollow suite that you could have yeah. made money on. You don't care you, about that. You keep that. lying to yourself that it's about profit. But clearly it's not about profit. You would have fired Rama a decade ago if it was about profit. <laughs> yeah, like, just getting this whole lecture on. You care about... You You have to say you care about people, Quark. <laughs> nope. So the Defiance fixed up. We mentioned everyone who's going. It goes to the wormhole into the Delta Quadrant. We come back like a week later, and the Defiant is at the end of a visit with the Vani Valtupali, which are these amazing, like long-limbed octopus people. Are like that? Ha- their head is like this big bulbous giant eye, or like it's not an eye. It's like a big o- like ocular sensor that also uh changes color to reflect their speech like their speech is all colors and shapes on their he- giant bulbous head eye and the ways in which they are able to communicate because they're an entirely nonverbal species is the federation all have like these light sensor pa- like almost like lcd screens strapped to their chests that are tied into their universal communicators so that they can like the communicator can on the fly read the symbols off of these aliens and then translate them and then when they speak it'll turn it into symbols that display on their chests and they're on this planet they're like on this tower like over this city that is all spread out and these this beautiful like it almost feels like multicolored like coral aquiline like city that is meticulously laid out and instantly it is the most expensive alien beautiful star trek vista we have ever seen yeah like them being able to go into the gamma quadrant it was suddenly the possibilities of what you can do in books when there is no budget it is intense like they described this whole city this whole like planet full of like multiple cities and this race that could never ever be done on screen and it's like problem of okay so they have met people before so they have like devices to translate but we haven't met them so we need to fix our translator up with theirs and work with their scientists with our scientists and it's just like beautiful coming together and it's just this throwaway scene (laughs) yeah it's like oh we've been on the planet we've been like it's we've been exploring museums for like a a whole week and he gives Vaughn this like fold out map that's like it's just like a crumble piece of paper until you unfold it and it turns this beautiful 3D model of this uh, amazing city they've been at and it's just star trek at its most star trekiest at utopian vision and it's beautiful and amazing it's it's pretty good and then instantly the moon explodes <laughs> as they're like the saying their farewells explodes. like we're gonna get off this planet the the moon on this planet literally fucking like cracks in half and like pieces are flying and there's an earthquake and everyone is like shrieking in terror except these squid people who don't verbalize so instead of shrieking in terror they just turn like bright white like they're just like blank white like with like slight whirls in on their skin which is actually also terrifying to think about uh as these people are like silently screaming in terror as their whole fucking planet falls apart as like earthquakes happen and the defiant has to quickly like disintegrate all of the pieces of this moon as it falls in the atmosphere. Otherwise everyone on the planet's going to be wiped out. Uh, and you get this amazing action sequence of 
the two shuttles and the Defiant all splitting apart to go vaporize pieces of the planet. And like Ezri's in command of one of the runabouts and is there commanding people and like getting the last pieces right before they explode to the point where like the shuttle is injured and crashes and Ezri loses someone and is like fucked up command wise. Like she's like, I was in charge of the mission and I lost this ensign. And it is just, it goes from like the most beautiful utopian Star Trek to like an actually like good Star Trek action scene that isn't about fighting people. And it is the two things Star Trek is bad at, like just done in this book with no, because you don't need a budget and it's amazing. Yeah. That's like the first thing it does. And it's, it's so good. So you just have a scene where the, the way they describe like, like it says Vaughn looked up and he saw that the world was falling or the sky was falling. Yeah. And, what that means like you can't show that you can't actually show a whole moon destroying a whole planet and then they're like uh because of the way this book is written there's a lot of like time decompression a lot of like then they did this for a couple hours um which the tv shows are never really able to do but i mean the show totally does that by switching to commercial and then having a captain's log like that's literally how that works in the show but it's i feel like it is more deliberate in this book Mm. um or just able to get into it more. Like, it's able to concentrate on the fact that the tasks that the crew are ca- carrying out are, like, hours of careful work to destroy this, like, asteroid belt or this moon debris that's about to hit the planet. It doesn't... It's not just an action scene and then it's done. Yeah, no. Like, it's like, this is the action. It describes the action. It's like, this is a crazy thing they're doing. And then it's like, they did this for six hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, the, the, like, that's, like, one sentence. And then the next sentence, they are exhausted from, like... <laughs> saving this entire planet yeah and then like Ezri wakes up uh in in the the, the sick bay of the defiant like uh we were able to save you but unfortunately ensign ronas is dead and she's like fuck shit god damn it yep so Ezri's b plot is that she has like this awful anxiety because this is the first person she lost and Ezri is Ezri and is like not super well equipped to deal with this stuff sometimes and but she's getting better the problem is Bashir reads her self-doubt as like debilitating when it is just like a natural part of being a person and it's like I don't know if you're fit to return to duty and she's like I'm fit to return to duty I'm a goddamn counselor I know my own mind uh and they don't quite argue about it but there is some tension um the, the interesting thing is that being concerned about someone's like psychic well-being after something bad happens is actually the job of Starfleet doctors and like Crusher did this all the time um and so I don't think it makes Bashir like bad to be overly concerned because that's what doctors on starships do but it does be it is this weird like continuing the tension of their relationship until you realize that it's just them being Starfleet officers and it's fine and it's weird it's a very delicate thing that the book is like it's a knife edge the book has to walk along and it handles it mostly pretty well oh yeah um, it is it fucking scores better of the stuff in section 31 a bit <laughs> at some point we're gonna have to stop referencing that book but maybe we'll read section 31 i don't know rogue or whatever the other. they almost get into a fist fight in that book jackson <laughs> they do do that don't... but it's a fake fist fight it's except not, not except the except Ezri's like, oh, what if it wasn't? What if it was real? <laughs> Man, remember when we said, oh, this book's fine. <laughs> this book's enjoyable, I guess. Yep. So wrong. Uh, we it's how so it nice be. to read a book that is actually well written and has characters that are conflicted and interesting in the ways that you'd want these characters to be conflicted and interesting. Now I'm going to hold all these books to this high standard and be perpetually disappointed. No, we don't do that. Don't do that. It'll be a road of woe. <laughs> the, yeah. So Julian and Ezri are like having this argument and 
uh, it like it starts out as Julian and a pair of Bashir. I keep calling him Julian. That's weird. He's Bashir, <laughs> as Bashir appearing as this asshole. But he is just I doing mean, his we, doctor it's job. Because, it's because we call Ezri Ezri because Dax is not specific. No, yes, Ezri is Ezri, um, yep. uh, and Bashir is like one. He's a doctor and is like always going to be the like that's the role of a doctor in every Star Trek episode is to be the conservative. Like we should take precautions and you should rest, yep. person. Uh, but it's also because he's Bashir, and you were pointing out to me, like, he has lived a, just a lie for his entire life and is completely unable to trust a single human ever. Yep. Uh, and the way that surfaces here uh, is interesting, because he never, like, he never stops Ezra. He's never, like, I, he never invokes his, I'm a doctor, you have to do what I say rule, and will and like, makes it clear that he will never do that, but also makes it clear that he is doing everything Un, like under protest like if it were up to him everyone would be taking this a lot calmer and a lot more carefully because i don't want you to die yep um this also happens uh getting a little ahead of ourselves like esri is in charge of the defiant while this is going on which is we why the do, concerns we should are do real. that stuff we should yes, do that yes. and so, then we'll do that so what happens is th- so they're like what happened to this fucking moon why did the moon explode that's not a thing that's supposed to happen like it happened to praxis but that's because the klingons were mining it to shit right uh so um, they real like they talk to the surviving uh, Valni Valto Pali, and they're like, "We've had there's been these pulses that happen. They come out of space. They hit our planet, and they're fucked up. Uh, and they've been happening with more frequency and with greater strength. And it's never been this crazy, but they keep happening, which means another one is going to happen soon. And if it's worse than this one, it's going to totally kill us. And so Defiance like, we have to figure this out. We can't let this entire race of beautiful people die." Uh, and they so immediately they... throw out that plan and head towards the center of this like pulse and whatever's going yeah, on. Yeah, so they backtrack they backtrack this pulse and it's coming from this planet that's like shrouded in these clouds that they like this eye like cl- weird electrical Star Trekky fuck you storm that's in every Star Trek episode. <laughs> Plot uh, convenient, no communications can pass through clouds. Yes. <laughs> um that's in this uh planet in this solar system where like every other planet has just been decimated. Like it's just rubble of planets and they're like, well, the star's still there because these pulses aren't bit hard, big enough to destroy the star yet. Uh, but it's clear that this is where the pulses are coming from. And so they send probes and the probes don't work until they go to the, they're like, we think we know where the pulse is coming from. We don't know what's down there though. And so they go around the other side of the planet and send a probe down. Cause the, the weird, the weird thing about the cloud cover is it's lesser, the further you get from the source of the pulse. And there, there's like some breaks in the clouds and the probe barely gets through. And they're like, there's like civilization. There used to be a civilization there cause there's cities and infrastructure, but everything's gone. There's no people. And they're like, well, we have to take a shuttle down. So it's Prin, uh, Char and, uh, Vaughn, uh, Vaughn go down to the planet, leaving Ezri in command. And this is why, why Bashir is like, oh, I don't know if she's ready to like go return to duty. And he's like, no, no, I trust her. Uh, this is what's going to happen. Ezri, we're going down there. If we you we have like a model about when the pulse is going to happen if well no because this 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 happens because they're like okay this pulse is gonna happen in three months we should work out what's gonna happen and then nog like reads all the things from this first probe and goes it's gonna happen in three days so we have to have a star trek episode (laughs) yeah and he's like if the pulse is about to happen and we're not back yet you need to leave you have to leave that is your job and she's like okay he's like don't stay for us uh and you know because it's star trek that she's totally gonna stay for them it doesn't matter Uh, I, I, I'm fairly sure it doesn't actually get to that. I think things It does enough. get to that, because they by the time they're setting down like the charges or whatever, we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but the time they set down the charges and stuff, uh, if the pulse went off, they would not have been able to escape. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I guess that's true. Because uh, but, he comes back and she's like, I stayed. And he's like, you did the right thing. Of course you did. You're a Star Trek. You're a Starfleet officer. <laughs> uh, you made hard choices and light being in command is about making hard choices. Yeah. So, uh, so they go off. We'll get to their plot in a bit, but we'll deal with the stuff on the Defiant first. Yes. Uh, so they're like, when they went close to like to the planet to uh, take like get, pick up the probe and drop off the shuttle, like a weird like something attack like hit the defiant and they they're like exploring what it was because it like left a hole and they find this weird nebulous goo that seems like it might be part of the cloud that's like in the defiant but it moved away from where it hit the defiant. It's like just in a Jeffrey's tube and like that's fucking weird and it act like it accidentally touches Esri and she immediately like goes into a coma and everyone flips out. Uh, and in the readings, they realize that the goo is like the like connection between Esri and Dax is like really low because the goo is communicating with Dax because it is like weird and potentially sentient. That's not, uh, I think it, we should note that, uh, Esri realizes this because she, when she touches the, the, the goo, she like feels this other presence there and it's yep. all written from like, the, this, the distance between Esri and Dax is separating and Dax is feeling something else and it's a very strange and unknown experience that she can't quite understand but she knows it matters and that it's like real and it might be another universe another form of communication but she can't like so she just wakes up from like a coma and goes it's another universe it's alive and then Bashir goes okay you need to stop commanding this right now because you are falling apart <laughs> and she's like no, uh, no 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 what I need to do is touch this thing again in a more controlled space <laughs> Uh, uh, and while while that happened they were like how this happened she wasn't even that close to it and they like analyze it and the goo is like it, it's like a physical thing in our universe but also it extends into like subspace and other like realms that they can't see or measure so it like the fact that she says it's another universe is like backed up by the science to the point where nog's like no it, it might be we don't know probably but bashir's <laughs> very Trek. skeptical about this because bashir's like yes it could be but it also could just be a bit of goo that's going to kill her for nothing and then we won't have a captain uh, yeah uh, and then Dax, uh, uh, Bashir, ah, Ezri goes, well, I, I'm the only one with a symbiote. I'm the only one who's a trail here. So I'm the only one who can like communicate in that way. It has to be me. I'm the only one that can do this. Uh, and eventually they, uh, Bashir is persuaded to go through with it. But that's like the tension there. And so you get this very long sequence of chapters where she is just lying in this induced coma by touching the goo again. Yep. Um, and they're like monitoring the levels and she's like okay I'm prepared so they don't she doesn't drop the levels as much because she knows what to expect and finds out what does she find out you can do this bit so the, uh, we'll get we'll get back to what's happening on the planet because this is happening with a lot of shit on the planet but yes. what she discovers is that on this planet uh, there was a race called the Printara who like created this like VR like virtual digital space that they they like jack directly into their brains to like access but their technology was like so advanced that this virtual space that they created actually didn't didn't just like unite all their minds into like a thought space but like tapped into another universe where a consciousness lived and that consciousness is called the inamuri um which they thought was like maybe a race or maybe like whatever or whatever but is like just a single consciousness that they basically were like like they were like their access of that you know that universe of like thought and imagination was like a cancer in the mind of this living being um and so they immediately like disengaged and like oh god what did we do we were like ac accidentally tapped into the brain of a thing like a giant space awareness the problem is that giant space awareness like lived in its own universe and suddenly had communion with other beings and realized like the idea of being alone 
and this, was this, this isn't this isn't this doesn't happen here. They talk about it here because Ezri floats the idea. Okay, yeah, but yeah, because okay. Ezri sends this entire thing to them to Vaughn and stuff on the planet. I thought it was more like she says the specifics, but Vaughn like there's a very specific scene where the no, no, no. Vaughn puts it so, together. The, so the thing that happens is okay. So they 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 they. they disconnect the connection to the Inamuri, uh, but then be, like because the gateway is already open, the Inamuri is slowly starting to like force its way through, and they don't really understand what's going on, other than the she reads the goo and like senses that the Inamuri sees the Printara as like invaders into its brain, but also as like saviors, and she's not entirely sure why. Um but the thing the pulses are part of the Inamuri coming from its thought space into our universe. And every time it does that, it's such like a violent thing that uh, it sends out this pulse. It's like an unintended side effect of this weird conduit that's been opened. And then like Nog works out, okay, we, if we get like around the source of this pulse and place these mines very specifically, uh, yeah. then we can close the portal and then Vivani will be saved. And so they send down these instructions in like a proton torpedo to where the ship was like scheduled to land and they send send it through the cloud and they hope and then what had been happening (laughs) meanwhile (laughs) yeah so the shuttle uh with vaughn uh char and uh tenme uh was going down to the planet and a lightning bolt like hit it and it immediately fucking crashed because (laughs) these books have the highest rate of attrition for shuttles in all of everything (laughs) boy do they uh yep no shuttles just go down that's what happens in star trek shuttles die (laughs) um rip the shuttles so it crashes in a spectacular fashion and vaughn and prin are mostly all right um (laughs) they're injured but uh char has like a broken leg and internal injuries and it's bad oh oh, i was the worst uh jackson has a problem with broken bones unfortunately i really do (laughs) um so they get him patched up and Vaughn's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and find this source. I'm going to walk there. You need to be, you need to figure out a way to get Char to like the extraction point in case I don't succeed. Uh, it, it is make important. sure that happens. It is important to say at this point that uh, one of the subplots in the book has been uh, Vaughn and Prim's relationship. Uh, and like Prim was almost forced off the mission, but then was able to like say i it's fine i just hate you for what you did but i'm gonna I'm, no 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 you because not- akar wanted her off the ship and vaughn was like no she needs to be on there this is our chance to maybe like reconcile through this mission you can't just remove her because she hates me it's okay that she hates me as long as she does her duty and she knows that and it's fine because <laughs> there's like a scene where he like explains the uh what, yeah, I think that's what she said. It's like, like she hates me less than she needs the mission, and that yep. is, and that is, that means something. Uh, and so, they are then thrust into Star Trek episode bottle of both crashed on this planet with this tension between them. Yeah, uh, and immediately afterwards, he just walks off into the into the distance. Yep. So he's heading towards the source of the pulse, and as that's happening, he is getting manifestations of, like, his worst memories expressed at him. Uh, It's like, oh, the time his wife died, which is the source of all of their woes, uh, because Vaughn... The implication, it's not explicit, but the, the, the thing that happened is that Vaughn sent... Uh, his wife, uh, Prin's mother, on an away mission where she was murdered. And he, because he was grieving and whatever, he never really talked to Prin about it. He just said, I did this. I killed her. 
and because he had like a very adult sense of responsibility for the thing, but you can't communicate that to a child and have them understand it. And he was too wrapped up in his own grief to understand that and just like let her live with it and then fucked off to go have more Starfleet adventures. Cause that's how Starfleet people process pain is they well, go it's... to another planet and have a new adventure. <laughs> yeah. Like it's specifically like he sent this away mission and then uh, was like, okay, I, I, I can't ruin her life more. I have to like give her the space. I have to give, be responsible. I have to give her the space. I have to do these missions. I have to, and then he's like, oh, I can't go and explore the galaxy. I have to go and do these missions. I have to give everyone the space. And he's like very, being very carefully like um, apart from everyone, keeping himself in a way that can't hurt anyone but in so doing is like making everything worse and so all these yeah. memories are like uh the first memory is of the captain of the enterprise b yeah captain harriman captain harriman who ferris bueller's know. best friend <laughs> yeah. cameron after he kicked that car out car. of that window went and became the uh captain of the enterprise b is uh photoshop the car falling out the window but it's kirk uh uh yeah so like he's like been around for ages and he just has this like he just walks off the captain walks off and he's like that's the fucking captain and my tricorder says it's actually him but i know it's not so what the fuck (laughs) yep uh and then he has like the vision of his of uh his wife and as it's happening like prin and uh and Char are also having nightmares, not the physical manifestations, but they're not as close to the pulse. And so they're all having a bad time of it, too. And jury rigging a Star Trek solution to, like, help teleport them, it doesn't really matter for the plot. Because oh, this is already a long episode. It's so good. It's so good. It's like a if we can get two teleporters working, we can program them to teleport to the range of how far we can teleport. Yeah, yeah, no, because, we'll, <laughs> like, if we have two teleports, teleporters, we will teleport ourselves and teleporter B with teleporter A. And then teleport teleporter A back to us. And then use that to teleport everything back further and just like relay chain these teleporters. And it's yeah, great. <laughs> it's such a dumb plot. That I don't think makes sense even in Star Trek science, but no, I love it. No, it totally does. You're, it's it's literally like a portal solution. It's thinking mm-hmm. of portals in Star Trek terms. It is 100% that, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's not, not important, but I, it does have to be mentioned because it's cool. No. Uh, um and so he's going through all these horrible things. He like remembers when he he was young and his mother told him she had like a fatal disease oh. and it's all really bad stuff. Uh, he gets, so he's just going through this thing and as he's going through these cities. He realizes that like everybody who lived in these cities killed themselves. Like he goes through the city and like everyone is dead clearly by their own hand. It's just like skeletons of people with like weird trauma. Like, you know, it's like, Oh, these were clearly suicides. Um, and when they when they land on the on the planet like all the cities are destroyed but no there's no consistent like cause yeah uh but as as you get closer to the pulse the reason is clear because these people clearly killed themselves yeah it's very clear Uh, that whatever was happening they'd lost their minds and they all died yeah uh so he because he's volunteering soldiers through all this trauma and gets to the center at the same time the probe that we talked about that was sent from the defiant lands where char and tenme are and they're like oh it's a plan we can't do anything with this (laughs) and so they like send it ahead to go to where the center of the pulse is they're like we hope vaughn's there uh and like sacrifice their power source for their transporter relay thing so they can't even do that so they have to like this is our last hope we have to send it to vaughn if he can't do this we're all screwed we can't actually use the transporters and it gets to vaughn as he approaches this like vortex at the center of everything where the pulse is happening and he gets it and he reads it and he puts two and two together which is the thing jackson stopped me from talking about i guess yes uh, it's the climax of the book it's such a good scene <laughs> so 
uh, Vaughn realizes that the thing that happened was the Inamuri after the Printara like accessed its brain uh, via their VR technology. It like had a conception of what loneliness is for the first time. And as they pulled out and like tried to shutter that window, it realized it would go back to being alone if they left. And even though what they did was really invasive on accident, it needed that connection. So it tried to force its way through this like narrow gateway. And in doing so created this subspace tear that's causing the pulses uh, but it keeps, it wants to come out so it can access other beings. So it can like exist in a universe where it's not the only thing that exists. And Vaughn, because he has been seeing these things, realizes that because the thing it is sending through with its like imagination powers is it digs into someone's brain and presents to them the con- concept of loneliness back at them. And no one else could figure out what that communication was but they kept seeing it to the point where that's why everyone on the planet killed themselves because they were confronted with their worst lonely memories over and over again. Yeah, and then you just have this moment where he's like, oh, right, they... I have to stop the to save the day. I have to, like, consign this creature to this awful loneliness. And he realizes, like... I am gonna like this is just a thing I've been doing all my life. In the worst time when like Prin needed me, I left her alone. I like left all these people alone. I never went and did the thing that I needed to do because I had this obligation. And it's this uh just it's just a really good climax and uh character beat that I didn't expect from like the science mystery to like connect that well. Um mm-hmm. and yeah, and you can just do the how they how this like results. so so Vaughn decides that he he's not willing to like consign someone like a living being to this fate of being alone forever. So while he sets up the bombs, he disables like three of them, which is not enough to close the rift. It's actually just going to blow it wide open. Uh, and I re- like Nog was always like, if the the charges aren't all placed, it's just going to blow the rift wide open, and that's going to be bad. But Vaughn's like, no no no, if this thing's a sentient being trying to get out, if we let it out, maybe it'll be fine. Uh, and he does that knowing that, like, oh, all this stuff's going to explode. This thing might escape into our world, but I'm going to be fucked. So what I'm going to do in my last moment is to, like, leap into the vortex and, like, at least try to, like, die not alone with this thing. Um, and, like, help usher it into this world with, like, my consciousness. And there's this great moment where Vaughn realizes that, like, like there's this whole, like, long list of all the horrible things that he's done and all the losses he's suffered. And then there's a line where, like, through the that Bajoran orb that he saw in Avatar, he, like, saw this new path out, a new way to, like, live his life. And do you still have that seg- that line I told you to get, Jackson? Uh, I, but now, in the end, he chose not to battle, for he saw no enemy. Instead, he would do what he'd always wanted to do. He would explore. And uh, I really love this because... Like, we've joked about Vaughn being big boss. and He spends this entire book going, remember the mission. Remember the mission. Yeah, like, Ezra, you can't leave us. You have to do the mission. And he's like, oh, Prin, I know we hate each other, but we're on a mission. This is what we do. We believe in the mission. And you, like, he's this grand tragic figure that has always been so focused on the mission. He sacrifices himself and everyone around him. And because this is Star Trek and because he had this vision of the prophets and he, he's been shown this new way, he can find a path out of it where, like, he's been a soldier for a century getting all this horror, like, this shit done for the sake of the Federation. And now there's no one left to fight and he's allowed another path. 
and he can just be the thing, the person who like sees the other way, can join with this sad creature and give it this like release from whatever's happened. If even if it means the loss of his life and like this moment of like sacrifice and grace is so good. Like we created like Star Trek has its big boss, but because it's Star Trek and not our shitty world through like an anime lens, he can get everything he wants and be whole. And like it's it's like really beautiful and affecting and I love it a lot. Uh, yeah. I'm that so glad that Vaughn is the best. <laughs> Vaughn's the best. Like, because it's also key that that scene, like, takes place inside. Like, he dives into this dimension and you just get this, like, Evangelion type of thing where he's, like, in his own mind and in the mind of everyone else in this, like, mesh of consciousness uh, and, like, finds the truth within himself of, like, being able to find a way of that isn't just setting everyone away from him pushing everyone away. He wants to live, blah, blah, blah. You know, just the thing that's in every one of these, but through the lens of star trek and yep. it's it's very very good and very affecting so what happens when he blows that all open is the inamory emerges and covers the entire like the storm goes away but the inamory covers the entire planet in like this like shapeless gray void that is just like impenetrable it's just like the planet instantly becomes like a gray sphere that the defiant can't like comprehend what the hell it is other than it's but- probably the gray goo Yep, but because it's like free now, the plot con- the plot inconvenience in cloud has gone. <laughs> yep. So they can just teleport everyone away and save them all. But the uh, also the pulses aren't going to happen, so the squid people are safe, thank god. Yes, everything is so, safe. So what happens is they're like analyzing this planet, they're like, "Oh god, is Vaughn and Print and everyone dead?" And actually like the actual space majesty happens in like this shapeless gray goo that covers the planet two holes appear like straight cylindrical holes all the way down to the surface of the planet. Uh, and at each of them on one of them lies Vaughn. And then on one of them lies Prin and Char unharmed safe from the thing, because as Vaughn like communed with this thing, he gave it the like knowledge of who, whatever, who these people were and that they didn't mean any harm and allowed it to save them. Uh, and so they can beam out and they're safe and they're free. And this thing's free. It just lives on this planet now. <laughs> Yep, it's a very like it's a plot that's in a lot of things. Of oh, the thing that was bad was actually the misunderstood thing trying to connect with people. Like that's so how- the the yeah. thing I really like is um what 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 actually happens here. And the thing that really struck me is that we've advanced so much as Star Trek that these people who are more com- more conflicted and less noble than the TNG crew were able to solve the Farpoint mystery without being told that it was a Farpoint mystery. Basically, yeah. <laughs> and you get like this moment where like the universe of Star Trek has come a long way from Q being like, I don't think you can solve what's going on. And <laughs> what the problem was, was that the the station was actually a being that was being captured, whatever. And yeah. so like for Vaughn of all people, who's been like tied up with section 31 and black ops, Starfleet shit to realize this just through the power of like his own training and understanding and his belief in everyone and their mission is like this great step forward for what Star Trek is. Yeah, yep it's that and also the fact that like the moment that was inevitable of okay all these plots are going to connect and the stuff in the defiant and what they're researching is going to hit with the stuff that like uh prin's doing and the stuff that vaughn's doing and all that happens is just they are able to share some like information and give instructions like it's just talking there's no yep. actual like oh and then they end up here and there's like a conflict it just is we are able to communicate a bit and that helps yep and so they release this thing and it's shrouding the planet and then vaughn like when he was communing with it, promised that he would send someone to be able to communicate with it. So they like leave instructions, like they send instructions back to the wormhole to Starfleet to like send people to communicate with it. 
<laughs> yeah, that's like there's going to be just a specific exploration mission to this place of like, okay, we need to find out what this thing needs. Yeah, we're going to send like interpreters and psychics and communicators and all the people we need that that can connect with this thing in any real way. Which is a really nice detail because in every stuff like TNG episode, they just fly off. Be like, yeah, we saved the day. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, but the whole point is this thing can't be left alone. And they contact the uh, Vani Baltupali also. And they're like, this is what the thing is. And you're safe and don't worry about it. And they like question it. And the, the implication I got at the end of this book, and it's been like a week since I finished it. So if I'm wrong, I, I apologize. But that this survey mission that Starfleet would have sent would also talk like go and meet them also. And yeah. the Vani Baltupali might also go to this planet and communicate with this thing or give it a shot. Basically, they're just going to set up like a, okay, we now have like a communication with these systems and these people. Yeah. Um, so you have this like planet wide being and this race that they saved are all new life forms they've discovered that also might be able to talk to each other because uh, both of their methods of communication are strange to like us as verbal beings. Uh, and it's great. It's just the most like belief in the diversity and interests of Star Trek. And Vaughn is there and has this moment with like, so like Vaughn's in sickbay and is recovering and it's like, oh, everyone's all right. And, but Prin isn't visiting him. And it's like, oh, what happened? Is, is she still mad at me? <laughs> What's going on? The book goes on for ages in this chapter. And it's like, oh, what the fuck is they going to do the Prin thing? And they know nope, someone else comes in and then Ezra comes and, in. <laughs> yeah. So Vaughn's like sent out of sickbay and back to his quarters. And then that night he is visited by Prin who refused to visit him in sickbay because they had these revelations on the planet because of being confronted with their own like sadness and loneliness they both had the same revelation and she just breaks down crying and they hug each other and she's like i didn't want to do this in sickbay it would have been bad and he's like i understand we're both starfleet and they just have this like really sweet like moment it's like it's like Prin and vaughn sat until the morning talking about their their uh their mother or her mother vaughn was ready to explore and And it's so vaughn had begun to explore yeah vaughn had begun to explore and it's so good it's so good this, uh, I don't, I mean, we've been saying this as we've been reading this book, but this book is the best. I love it so much. Yeah. Uh, we will, like, it's so good that we will be surprised if something unseats it as the best one, like, Star Trek book. Like, I'm hoping there's other ones of this quality. I'm very excited to read, like, other books that, that um, David R. George has written, because, like, the quality of just the writing paragraph to paragraph is much higher, but it's yep. also very special. Uh, like, the things it's about are very good, and you could write, like, there can be books this well written, but it hits on something that is like good in and special in a way that isn't necessarily super replicatable blah, 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 yep. words yeah the it has the space majesty it has the character beats it is it is all the things that i think are really good and special about star trek and i love that they all exist in this book i was like oh god it's 500 pages but it got it, it luckily earned it <laughs> yep yeah for sure uh, it had so, to, yeah. Can you imagine if it was as much as Section 31 Abyss and was 500 pages long? Oh, we would be dead. <laughs> we would be de- We're going to hit that one day. we got Voyager books to read. I don't know. People like them, I guess. The- Those Voyager books, look, they can't be as bad as, like, some of Voyager, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. Who knows? Someone, someone told me that there's an episode of Voyager, because I haven't watched Voyager yet, uh, but I was like, they said a voyager gets so weird and i responded with obviously that uh i'm crusher fucks a ghost like come on now uh and they said two characters in voyager get turned into frogs and have kids and no one ever talks about it It, it, that happens in like season one maybe two what (laughs) (laughs) i've seen is that an episode i've already seen i've seen some seasons anyway voyager (laughs) 
they don't turn to frogs. They turn to lizards. And they aren't <laughs> conscious. They aren't aware of what's happening when they do that because they're fucking lizards. So don't worry about it. All right. Well, Voyager. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun episode. I don't know. It's fine. Okay. Well, I will see it soon. As, as we go on this journey, I will fill in all my Star Trek gaps. So, uh, short break, and we're going to be back with questions, because this episode is so long. Please, if you if you read any of these books, uh, if you're like, I want to read one of these books, this is a book, the book I would heartily recommend to read. Yes. You have the context. It's really well written. It's You know, you're going to know what happens, obviously, if you listen this far, but it's still worth it. It's good. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. It's all right. You're not used to playing with anyone, are you? Just the computer. Well, I may not be as precise as a computer, but I think you'll enjoy it more. If you've got questions, we've got answers. Send any questions about Star Trek, uh, specific or general, to podcast at normalmapping.com, and we are going to answer them. We have three questions by two people. Um... The first one is by at Siberian Pine because they signed it with their Twitter handle. So we're going to use that. Um, it is from a non-binary listener to non-binary host. You've touched on it briefly on the podcast before, but given how many alien species races there are in Star Trek depictions, there are in Star Trek depictions of gender have always been very biological, superficial, or completely detached from the human crew's understanding. Do you think aliens can be a useful metaphor to tell stories about existing outside the gender binary? Or do you think the non-binary experience is defined by the way our Western culture enforces gender and best explored relative to that? Oof. I think this is a really good question. We we when it came in, we were like, uh, our first reaction was like, there is an inherent uh problematic hurdle to get over with Star Trek. That the the concept is based around using aliens as broad metaphors for areas of like human culture, which yep. is something that uh, can often get very gross and often is in especially early like TNG and TOS stuff. Um but it, yeah, it's an uncomfortable thing and can be, but it is a hurdle you have to get. A, like, it's the thing you just accept going in. Yeah. Um, there is a um, there's a really great Star Trek podcast I like called Mission Log that is yes. like an episode by episode rundown of uh, Star Trek. And when they got to TNG, they've talked a lot, early, especially early in season one, when the characters are less defined, that what TNG represented was the Enterprise crew itself were not like actual characters with like interiority they were aspects of what we define as a person where like picard is like a sense of obligation and exploration and data is like our curiosity and our scientific like logical center and deanna is like our sense of emotion and like hope and wonder and put together these aspects of the mind go planet to planet and look at reflections of humanity and that's what tng is um especially early on. And what that means is like inherently the actual most human part of Star Trek is whatever goofy ass planet they end up on every week. Um, and I think that's especially true for uh, TOS and early TNG. But because of that, um, you get like everything is stretched through metaphor. And the problem with metaphor is that while I can speak to really broad concepts, it can't speak to like specific experience. We haven't really covered the episodes in, tng about it but there's a lot of tng stuff uh with wharf that like especially in like seasons five through seven that is coded like black experience stuff that is 
totally obscured by the fact that he is Klingon and everything's about Klingon and Romulans. And you only would know it if you are aware of that stuff in cultural context. Um, and the problem with like gender stuff is when Star Trek goes, Oh, this one's about gender. Look at this weird alien. <laughs> it's always presented as like, I, I, the, the problem, I guess is the problem with metaphor is that it becomes an explainer to the norm, not an experiential thing to the people who live that life. So, when you get a gender episode, it's not about like exploring non-binariness. It's about explaining gender stuff to the fucking most straight cishet bullshit people. And in usually the world. written by very yeah, straight. Yeah, it's usually written by those people also. So it doesn't actually reflect any lived experience and becomes like a thought experiment, which doesn't actually mean much to the people who live those lives. And I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of Star Trek that can teach us about like being open-minded and how we confront new ideas and how we reflect upon ourselves. If you're, if you're willing to like, let that be a foundational guide. Like I'm really glad I grew up with Star Trek because I think it made me a more curious, more open-minded person. But if you're like watching it day to day, what you get is all oh, these aliens have like weird gender stuff. And Riker's going to fuck that person, even though it's <laughs> because she's a lady, even though they don't have gender, but these are all ladies. Uh, weird. Yeah. And that stuff sucks. <laughs> yeah, boy, doesn't it? Uh, and it's like kind of the best you can expect out of Star Trek, given the ways in which its metaphors are set up. Um, but I think if you wanted to actually tackle, if you actually want to tackle the experience of humans, like d defying gender norms and experiencing things that are not just men and women or like default whiteness or you know being gay or any of these things uh you have to go to narratives about actual humans who experience that stuff i, I know jackson you've been really like every time we read like awful like nerd site fan casting stuff it always has data as <laughs> like data is about autism and no data is not about autism <laughs> read things written by autistic people about autism if you want autistic characters as someone yeah like there was specifically a fan casting thing that was like uh, whoever plays sheldon cooper as data and i was like <laughs> oh god this is hell <laughs> yeah. and that needs to be true of non-binary characters also like having an alien that like defies gender roles doesn't mean anything because what actually will matter is humans confronted with the experience of being a human who is non-binary and mm -hmm. that's like it's a thing that star trek just can't it's not built to do and i don't think it can do very well it can give you the sense of like being equipped with tools to examine someone else's experience if you follow the morals of star trek but the concrete facts of star trek don't really matter to that stuff so it doesn't matter what the metaphors are but it's also like i think they became slightly aware of that because like dax and ds9 there are moments there's like that bit where um the person you know they're both girls now and they're you know they kiss or whatever and it's not very good and so usually it just never even like interrogates that side of things it's mostly about the personal experiences of, okay what is dax thinking at this moment like okay she's become esri now how is esri feeling about this what is it like going from a counselor to this it like focuses on like the exact other areas and realize like it is at its best or has been when the writers recognize that because it is very clumsy usually as dealing with them it doesn't go there so yep. i think it's better as like it's better left alone generally maybe there'll be some instances especially in the books i know like, like the uh i know that in other books like in the books we've read there have been way more like oh okay rick berman's not here put a gay person in it yep. <laughs> like and like like discovery is going to have two characters that are men in in a relationship and that's like interesting and good i guess but like if you want 
books about, or if you want media about this experience, go to people who are those things yes. and are writing those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's both, it's a thing that I don't think it does very well. And it's also not what I necessarily want. Like I would love to see a really good non-binary character in Star Trek, but I would much rather them stay away for the risk of that being terrible. <laughs> yep. Like the, the, th- I mean, it's kind of it's kind of the like end moral of all good things, right? But to me, Star Trek is always about equipping you with questions, not equipping you with answers. Yes. Yes. Next question. Okay. Yes, this one's on my screen. One. Uh, I'll say this one's on my screen. Uh, this is from uh, Lynn Twine, who asks uh, one. Is Garrick the best character in DS9? I don't think I've seen anyone else, not even Quark, who can be so easily dropped into a scene and played superbly off any character he's with. Uh, I'm sorry, it is Quark. It's Quark. It's Quark. It's Quark. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, Quark is played really broad, especially early on. Uh, and the Frankie are joke characters in a way that, like, I've, I've, I mean, we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the stuff with him and Roe that, like, I'm sad that Frankie are treated as, like, co- broad comedy all the time. But... Uh, because Armin Sherman has played Star Trek characters forever, uh, like, you know, he was a Frangie early on in TNG, and he's like a really good actor and has been a character actor forever and will continue to do hopefully for a long time. He brings a humanity and like a, a sense of uh, like three-dimensionalness to Quark that is like really, really fascinating. Um, and Quark works really good in any situation because he's always true to himself in a way that allows him to like fit in all the situations and be him, but be interesting depending yeah. on who he's bouncing off of. Like more formally um, than like Quark being the best, he's also the character in the bar. He is the character designed for some everyone else to talk to to be a foil. He is a character yeah. who exists for. It is like <laughs> it's no coincidence that like one of the best scenes in DS Nine is just okay. We're short for time. Put a Quark scene in it, and then they, that led to the uh, Prejuice. Not Pre- is it not Prejuice? What is it? Is it Prejuice? Uh, root beer. Root beer. Prentice is Worf. Yes. Yes. The root beer scene. Um, uh, and, like, that isn't just, like, Quark. It's also, like, the heart of DS9. Like, Quark is that, and that's why he works so yeah. well. Like, you, when you get Quark and Odo, you get, like, these two clearly, like, have a certain professional affection for each other, even though there's no reason for them to, because they've just been around forever, because they've been on the station longer than anybody else. And if you get Quark and Dax, like, Dax is, like, disgusted by Quark's continuous flirtatious advances, but loves the Ferengis because they're ridiculous and they have a good time. And like, they can just sit together with that fact being true. And you get like Dax and, or uh, not Dax, you get like uh Cisco and Quark and you get this idea of like, Cisco has no, like no need for Quark, but recognizes Quark's importance to the community that's been built on DS9. Like Quark brings out aspects of every character he interacts with in a way that Garrick does not. Because, for everyone other than Bashir, because Bashir is like just a gullible fool, <laughs> they look at Garrick and go, we're just not going to trust you. Like, tell us the truth or get out of here. Because they, they're business-like Starfleet folks and they get shit done. And so I don't think Garrick actually works with anyone Starfleet other than Bashir. Because Bashir will always fall into the trap of playing Garrick's stupid game because Bashir's a stupid boy. Uh, I mean, Garrick works really well with Cisco, and Garrick has fantastic scenes with a bunch of cast members going yeah. on. But 
it's not a, it, it's only after a lot of work and a lot of like universe changes uh quark from like day one can be inserted into any like that is the what the character is at the start and doesn't like become yep. doesn't like happen at certain moments like that is who he is and why he like, is always there there so i like my my perfect evidence for this is there are two ds9 characters that appear in tng one of them is bashir in a terrible bunch of scenes with data <laughs> and the other is quark in this beautiful scene where Riker contacts him for information and basically like intimates that if Quark gives him the information, then like Riker will pay his tab and Quark's like, okay, fine. I'll give you the information. Uh, Quark is Quark's in all three series. Yep. Don't they like, don't they like call up, call Quark up in TNG at some point later as well? Yeah, that's the scene. It's like Riker contacts Quark for information and uh, Quark will not give it to him. Because the the Bashir stuff in like a crossover where Quark is also there, but the Quark other stuff just happens later as they realize, why don't we put Quark here? We can always use more Quark. Uh, yeah, Quark's the best. We had another part of the question. Yes, question two. What does your ideal Star Trek game look like? Something more focused on ship slash crew life, combat, a strategy game. Because of the different angles between some of the shows, it's hard to know what I'd be most down with. I like elements of TNG and DS9, but the elements are so individual in comparison that I don't think they'd be easily messed into a single game. So, as much as I... So, I have two answers. Like, I don't really... Like, the things people do in Star Trek are not that interesting to me like Mm -hmm. the two things i really like about star trek are the world and the narratives so i have two things like i want to just have a cool like file of a game that i can load up or i can walk around star trek spaces (laughs) there's the one version of this which is just i don't care what the game is i just want to walk around the enterprise i just want to i don't even need a game just give me the enterprise and ds9 and like digitize that stuff into well rendered 3d models for me to walk around in Yes, not just mo- yeah. I need to be able to walk and put the foot sound effects. And that's it. That's all you need. <laughs> the other thing I, is the narratives, and that means that I don't actually care explicitly what type of game it is, but I just want like a good story that I can play through in a game. So like, what I actually want is like a classical CRPG style game, like a uh, Planescape Torment or something, as a Star Trek game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I don't I care think... what it's about, but I think that's the only way to express the like ideas of like personality as like building a character and existing in a universe and expressing yourself in the various aspects that star trek characters can express themselves in a video game like you could be a klingon and then you build aggression and then you intimidate people to like get answers you want or you're like a you're a betazoid and then you get different dialogue options because you can read people's emotions like the only ways in which star trekness can be expressed in a video game is a talky ass or computer rpg like that's my i firmly believe that's true i fully agree and also i want to add on that it needs to be an isometric like i don't want to see there's a version of this where it is the kotor problem and you have these spaces that are tiny they're pretending to be big spaces and that only barely works in star wars and star wars is a much less uh like specific universe it can like work better with um like star wars can pull it off more because it's star wars you can just do what you want (laughs) sorry star wars but you're not star trek (laughs) uh and so you need a you need a a game where you don't have to voice every line you need a game where the screen is just a like isometric basically the equivalent of a map painting you need a game that is all abstracted because if you don't abstract it you can't do it you can't 
like you, the, they barely have the budget to do it in one of the most expensive tv shows they will not be able to do it in any way that like people would say like oh where's telltale star trek game it'd be fucking terrible yeah no <laughs> it'd be hell on earth yeah everything would be too cramped it'd run like garbage and it will only give you one path of a narrative like you don't get to build a character and explore a world that way you just get to play like an episode and you're done and like that's fine i guess but i don't i think you can dream bigger with a star trek game if you reduce the like technical scope Mm -hmm. yeah like ds9 as a ship as a station uh, is very similar in its it's the the closest you get to like a you know an rpg town uh I would want something like that. I don't want it to be on DS9, but it would have to be, you are a person who goes to a place and deals with things in a yep. very talky, uh, Pillars of Oblivion type way. Yep. Uh, Pillars of Oblivion is not a video game, Jackson. What is it? Pillars of... Pillars of Eternity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pillars of Obsidian is what I meant to say, but I even fucked that up. <laughs> So that's it for us. You know what we're reading next. Uh, Jackson, please let the people know where they can find us that is not this podcast. You can find us on the internet at abnormalmapping.com with a bunch of podcasts. They all have their own domains. We have a game club called Abnormal Mapping where we talk about video games. Uh, it is at thebestgame.club. Uh, me and Molly Rhinebeck do a show called The Amory Score where we take you through the lore uh, of nonsense Coheed and Cambria songs. Uh, that is at i need mayo.com and uh, it's like it's like it's like this podcast but way shorter and way stupider <laughs> between the two we have covered the exact opposite points of sci-fi narratives <laughs> uh and i also have a mental health podcast uh with me and destiny uh, which is at goof.zone uh you can find the patreon if you would like to support us at any level you can find that at patreon.com slash abnormal mapping it's great um we love your support uh i don't think anyone who's supporting us is only supporting us for this podcast but hey if you are give us a shout out on patreon um if you back us at various levels you could suggest books for us to read episodes for us to watch you could even be on an episode of this show talking about your favorite star trek thing or your favorite just general sci-fi thing we don't care uh so just go to patreon.com slash abnormal mapping you can find me on twitter at em underscore being jackson did you give your twitter yes headfuls off okay uh you can find this podcast at star trek podcast.space that's it for us we will be back in a month we there's probably going to be no comic episode between the two of these because jackson's very busy uh so please enjoy enjoy your star trek we'll see you out there Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru In Lama Land, there's a one-man band and he'll toot his flute for you Come fly with me Let's take off in the blue Once I get you up there Where the air is rarefied We'll just glide Starry-eyed Once I get you up there I'll be holding you So near You may hear 
Angels cheer cause we're together Weather-wise it's such a lovely day Just say the words and we'll beat the birds Down to Acapulco Bay It's perfect for a flying honeymoon They say Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Once I get you up there Where the air is rarefied We'll just glide Starry-eyed Once I get you up there I'll be holding you so near You may hear Angels cheer Cause we're together Weather-wise It's such a lovely day Just say the words and we'll beat the birds down to Acapulco Bay. It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, blast off, let's 